Welcome back to the Kaiku Podcast. The whole crew is here. Chris Camellia, say hello. Uh, hi. Hi. And a uh, special guest here. Corey's with us. Hello. The false Corey. The false Corey. We're, right. we're not going to get into this argument here. <laughs> it's too late. This does not need to be a four-hour podcast. We're at it. I don't think you know us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, Lord, what have I came into? Uh, we are here to talk about our top movies of 2017, and before we do that, let's just go around the table for a few honorable mentions. Let's start with Chris. Okay, uh, <laughs> well, some movies that, you know, I don't, weren't weren't good enough to, to rank up high, but definitely need some more eyeballs. Uh, I want to call attention to The Black Coat's Daughter. I talked about it on the movie podcast last year. It was Oz Perkins' uh, directorial debut. I did. I, it was I it was Oz Perkins' directorial debut that sat on a mm. shelf because nobody could figure out who wanted to buy it for distribution. Oh, so Oz nice. Perkins, yeah, Oz Perkins' second movie, "I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House," came out on Netflix last year. So that's the one that I talked about last year. This year, Black Coat's Daughter finally came out, and it was incredible. Um, it's a, one of those uh, slow burn horror movies that just makes you feel uneasy. It, it, it never really goes for any scares, but you're like, what is going on here? And the final moments were absolutely terrific. Um, also, The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Uh, last year, Camellia talked about The Lobster, I believe, and this is the new movie by the guy who made The Lobster, and it is some fucked up shit. Um Lobster Killing already kind of fucked up in its own way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sacred Deer is way more fucked up. Like, <laughs> if you want to, if you want to feel, if you want to watch a feel bad movie that makes you laugh and then you're uncomfortable because you laughed, this is your movie. <laughs> um, David Lynch, The Art Life documentary about one of my favorite filmmakers, Brigsby Bear. Um, I know Camelia just yesterday mentioned in, in chat, you know, she'd never heard of Brigsby Bear. That's because most people have not heard of Brigsby Bear. I really, really liked that movie. It's about filmmaking and how uh, you pour your personal life experiences into it, even if it's not quality. Um, and it's also about finding your family and finding your place in the world. If you look it up, like it's written and directed by a bunch of Saturday Night Live people that aren't actual Saturday Night Live comedians. So I was pretty, pretty weary going in, but it's, it's not a Saturday Night Live movie. Um, even though it does have Adam Sandberg floating around in there. Uh, <laughs> and the last one is, uh, a movie called Super Dark Times. Uh, this one's been getting a lot of praise in various corners of the internet and it's entirely worth it. It's a coming-of-age movie that takes place in the early 90s, and it's fucked up. Um, <laughs> it's, 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 it's about some super dark times, guys. Um, yeah, no, it's a really great coming-of-age story. It does feel kind of similar in the vein of a movie like Stand By Me, just super dark in these nice. times. Yeah, that's right. Okay, those, those are just the ones I wanted to highlight. <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, so, Camellia, what are your runners-up? Um, these aren't really runners-up, but 
Um, you, Corey with a K, probably has at least two of these on your list. So I figured Perhaps. I'll let you I'll let you talk about them. I'll talk about something else. Atomic Blonde, which uh, is kind of like a James Bond but better, and with Charlize Theron, uh, and it's in the Cold War era of <clears throat> the Berlin Wall. Lady John Wick, not James Bond. <laughs> it's fucking Lady John Wick. I, like, uh, like if that's not enough to want to watch the movie, there's, there's like <gasps> that it, was so more than enough. <laughs> there's, there's a, a scene that's like all one shot near the end where Charlize Theron does the whole like stunts in the fighting, and it's ridiculous. So that's really cool. It also has the. 80s or music is amazing. It's got some one thing new. That I really, one thing that I really liked about the music was it wasn't all 80s music. That had newer bands doing covers of 80s music. Yeah, so like <clears throat> there's a, a. I think it's a health cover of a New Order song, Blue Monday '88. I think. Yeah, I was actually not a fan of. Uh, I wish they would have went more obscure with the music instead of using like. I mean, uh, the, yeah, the the state, yeah. How uh, 99 Love Balloons was probably, like, um, the best example of it being, like, in your face with the soundtrack. And we've had we've had a couple of these kind of movies uh, this year. Uh, I'm thinking of one other one that I'm guessing is probably going to come up from somebody um, by a certain Edgar Wright. Anyways, <laughs> that's all I needed to comment on the soundtrack. But I like Atomic Blonde a lot. Kitty, get off the phone. <laughs> Hi Mars. Uh, Call me by your name, uh, which is uh, really awesome. Uh, Shape of Water. If you want to watch your lady and fishman sex, I do. Who doesn't? Yeah, uh, Lady Bird, which is really good coming of age kind of thing. Uh, Get Out, which is the best horror movie I've seen in 2017 so far, and you know it would probably be like my number one or two, but. Corey's going to talk about it. So, and then uh, John Wick Chapter Two uh, is amazing. I really like how it ups the ante and it like um, it really fleshes out the mythology of like this weird like everyone is an assassin thing. And also, you know, Lawrence Fishburne and uh, Keanu Reeves meet again. This is just the prequel to The Matrix. <laughs> I have never been more excited for the third entry in a film series than I am with John Wick. That's so good. I, and I love that Orange Fishburne is still in his, like, Nebuchadnezzar attire from this <laughs> <laughs> wolf. He just never changed. I was like, you homeless motherfucker. <laughs> He's just never changed out of that since The Matrix. So, those are my. All right. Corey, what you got? Uh, so, uh, most of mine have been mentioned here. And Lady Bird uh, and Get Out are probably the two highlights that nearly made my list, uh, but just quite didn't. So, um, yeah, that's pretty much it. All right. Uh, so my also-rans include the superhero movies that came out this year, Guardians, Volume 2, Thor Ragnarok, uh, Spider-Man Homecoming, Wonder Woman, and also the movie that like no one saw, Professor Marsden and the Wonder Woman, which was very good. And about uh, the the dude who created Wonder Woman and his weird relationship with his wife. It's good. Blade Runner twenty forty nine was very good. Uh, but it's not as good as the other movies. I love Blade Runner. I think I need to watch that twenty forty nine again. And also the original Blade Runner. Anyway, uh, Marshall about 
Thurgood Marshall, played by Chadwick Boseman, who uh, is playing just about every historical black figure in history. Very soon, uh, Girls Trip, which was four four black women just going on a going on their last hurrah, I guess, uh, which was fantastically funny. John Wick Two also just missed my list. It's not as good as John Wick One, which is not like, what. It is, it's not. It's way better. No. no. Like, yeah. John Wick 1 is, like, one of my favorite movies of all time now, and John Wick 2 is just... It's amazing, but it's not as good as John Wick 1. I think this goes into uh, the false Corey column here as a loss, because I think John Wick 2 is also better than John Wick 1. <laughs> <laughs> Three to one, overruled. All right, all right. Well, y'all are wrong. Like. Yeah. <laughs> you get right tomatoed. Yeah, uh, also missing my list is The Big Sick, the Kamal Nanjiani movie about his him meeting oh, his wife. Oh, yeah, you're totally right about that one, too. Yeah, which was fantastic, but not as good as some of the other stuff. Uh, the Problem with Apu, which was a documentary by uh, Hari Kundabolu about like how problematic Apu is, being voiced by this white dude and doing this terrible Indian accent. And something that I kicked off like right before we started recording is Ladybird, which I loved and would probably be on a top five list. But uh, I want to highlight some other movies instead. I do love Ladybird. That is the purpose of these lists: highlight things. Yeah. Everybody loves Ladybird as they should, so it's okay if none of us talk about it. Yeah, there are far more eloquent speakers about it. Uh, on other podcasts, you should go listen to those. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I just I, I don't I don't know what like I really liked it, but I wouldn't really know what to say about it. I mean, it's a movie about this girl in high school trying to uh, realize that she doesn't know everything and her relationship with her mom. And it's directed by Greta Gerwig, who is amazing. And I I don't know if I'm I'm qualified now that I said all those things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but let's get right into the list. Why don't we? Chris, what's your number five? My number five. Well, since I have the microphone, I'm just going to uh, to go with it. The honorable mentions were my honorable mentions beyond number 10. So I'm just going to name off number 10. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, I'm not going to talk about them. Uh, number 10, Lady Bird. Number nine, The Shape of Water. Number seven, Itonia. Or number eight, Itonia. Number seven, Blade Runner 2049. And number five, John Wick 2. What about number six? That was number six. My actual number five. Oh, you because, said number so five So I watched the movie. Yet, no. So I'm screwing up because my brain is really bad because my number five is a movie I just watched yesterday, so it's not in my list yet. So it screwed me up. It's okay. I have movies I watched yesterday in my list. <laughs> so I was going on I was going on and off if I wanted to keep John Wick 2 as my number five or push it down to number six. But upon reflection, I'm going to push it to number six because the movie that I watched yesterday actually fits in uh, pretty well in a strange, only Chris would think of this thematic. You have a uh, theme? Not really. Oh. Uh, so, so I'm actually doing something different this year. I'm trying to give it straight. Like this is my for real top oh, okay. five, except I still don't know if, if this film is number five or six. And that <laughs> is <laughs> Boon Jong Ho's Okja. Boon Jong Ho is a South Korean filmmaker who splat, splashed really big a couple of years ago with Snowpiercer, starring Chris Evans. Um, I think I talked about Snowpiercer 
the year it came out when we did this podcast. I think, yeah, I think so. I don't have those lists written uh, down And his yet. big breakout, was that really his big breakout? I thought he had... Uh, I, was, I, would, I think The Host was his big breakout, but... Yeah. But but for American audiences, like in general, the movie that was in English with a bunch of American actors, I think is more of a a bigger film for him just in in this country. But, but yeah. how American really is Tilda Swinton? <laughs> she is an alien. She's Asian. <laughs> Haven't you watched Doctor Strange? Watched Doctor Strange? <laughs> she's like one. She's probably my favorite part of Snowpiercer. I'm sorry. Absolutely. Uh, she was incredible in Snowpiercer, but thankfully she's also incredible in Okja, who uh, she plays two roles. Anyway, so Okja, um, it came out on Netflix in the summer, so it was one of the more contentious films because they tried to get it uh, to play during Khan, and that was when Khan was freaking out, saying, oh, Netflix isn't movie. Netflix is TV, so we don't care about your stupid foreign film. And it finally released in the summer, and for some reason, I just never sat down to watch it. Um, I sat down to watch it yesterday, and it was... Amazing. Heartbreaking in so many ways. I was a sobbing mess. I was mm-hmm. ugly crying and, and hiccuping, and you couldn't understand me if I tried to talk to you um, at multiple points <laughs> during the film. Basically, the movie is a pro-vegetarian, pro-vegan type film about a... You have my attention now. <laughs> about a super evil American corporation conglomerate called Mirando, um, who the father, who was the founder, is a psychopath. The sister, who was the CEO through the 80s, is a psychopath. And the CEO through the 90s, or the 2000s, is also a psychopath. Uh, the two psychopathic... CEOs that were not the founders are both played by Tilda Swinton as twins. They are trying to figure out how to rip off more money from the world, and they try to do it in a faux pro-environmental way. They say, we have bred a new super pig, non-GMO, environmental friendly, all of this crazy stuff. And they, in 2006, I think it was, they set off a competition. So they send 26 of these super pigs to various farms across the world for the various farmers to raise them on their, to raise them independently. And then in 10 years time, they will choose who the best super pig is. And it will lead to this whole revolution where the world will never starve. And who's choosing these super pigs? (laughs) I will get to that in a moment, (laughs) sir. (laughs) So smash cut 10 years for, uh, ten years forward, it's 2016 or whatever, and we're in South Korea, and we meet this uh, 14-year-old girl called Nija, who is the uh, granddaughter of the farmer who received the super pig for South Korea. She has grown up with uh, this super pig who she has named Okja her entire life, and they're best friends, and it opens up with this really wonderful... Like, they're just wandering through the forest and rubbing bellies. It's like Totoro and all kinds of super cute things all at once. There's also a harrowing cliffhanger, the cliffhanger being the Sylvester Stallone movie moment <laughs> where uh, Mija falls off of a cliff and Okja is holding on to a rope and trying to save her. Wait, what? Yeah, I'm telling you. It's just all in the very beginning. It's They're, like, wandering through the woods. The, and The pig is holding the rope? Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. okay. These pigs are what? pretty big. It's back, 
The super pig is like 30 feet tall. This thing is a monster. Yeah. Okay. okay. It, it's, it's absolutely massive. It actually looks more like if you took a hippopotamus and tried to make it uh, with dog features. So it's like a dog hippo, but it's a super pig. Okay. Anyway. The, the more fantastical thing is a rope holding Ocha. <laughs> <laughs> and so then they get they, they go back to the farm and then they find out that they are the winners because the Mirando Corporation has sent their their top dog, the face of the competition, who is basically the crocodile hunter, played by Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, what? It's amazing. The funniest, the funniest performance of the entire year. Because when he's sitting there and he's talking to you, he fucking talks like this. So, you know, I'm fucking sweating over here, and then you got to bring the microphone over here so I can talk into it. And all of a sudden, my name is Johnny, and we're here to talk about Super Pigs. He is the greatest character in this movie. And he has, a, like, a great scene later where he's just drinking and being a crazy person. He, he gets super drunk off soju, and he's just, like, rolling around on the floor. Ah. Anywho, um, but yeah, so the, Okja is awarded Best Pig, and so the corporation is going to take Okja back to New York. Basically, they, they're, they're going to do a dog and pony show to be like, look how amazing this is, and then murder Okja because it's meat. They, they, the corporation is breeding these super pigs as a replacement for cows and regular pigs because they're so massive that they could feed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of more people per pig. And nothing but, is wasting out of them. Uh, no, they're, they're wanna... in a certain way that that you can eat any piece of them, even like the bones or something like that. I don't want to derail, but just because they're bigger, I mean, that also means they take more resources to grow. So I don't know. No, they, that, they, no? they take all of this into account. Okay. They are, okay. they are built and engineered to have less feces, to consume less uh, feed. They, they are literally just super. Sounds like paid. it defies the laws of physics. Okay. It does, but that doesn't yeah. matter. Who cares about <laughs> physics? It's a fucking move. But the rope, guys. <laughs> the fucking rope. Hold <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, when they're when they're taking they're trying to take Okja to New York, Mija she goes to Seoul um, and is running around through the town, and she encounters the ALF, the Animal Liberation Front, who the film posits as the heroes, but it doesn't show them as perfect, uh, which I thought was really interesting. Because um, more, like <laughs> more like idiots. Yeah. Uh, Paul Dano is the leader of this ALF. Uh, he does not get beaten up with a bowling pin. Spoilers. <laughs> Paul Dano is really good, and I cannot believe he's younger than I am because I've been watching him in movies for like what seems like forty years, <laughs> and he doesn't age at all. Uh, Steven Yoon from The Walking Dead plays uh, the second in command of the Alf Brigade, <clears throat> and, and 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 so the the movie continues on from there where the. Alf and Mija are both trying to save Okja, and the evil corporation is just trying to kill them. It's such a crazy movie, um, and this is why one of the things that I really love about like Korean and Japanese cinema is the ability to, to juggle all these crazy tones. This movie is horrifically sad. It's grotesque because it, 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 it spares no quarter for the, the imagery of a slaughterhouse, of 
what the meat industry does to the animals and you know, despite all of their posturing about how this is how we feed people, that they're just in it for the money and it's fucked up and it's cruel. And I could see this movie being the last straw for a lot of people to turn vegetarian or vegan. But it's also really, really funny because not just Jake Gyllenhaal, but uh, Paul Dano has some really good lines. Uh, Tilda Swinton being a psychopath is actually really fantastic and funny. Um, Giancarlo uh, Desposito, or I can't remember his last name. He was he played he basically is the, Esposito, Esposito. Okay, Giancarlo Esposito. <laughs> he plays, Certainly Fonzie. That's right. <laughs> He's Tilda Swinton's like second in command, like secretary or whatever. But I know him from the the absolutely amazingly terrible TV show Once Upon a Time. He plays the the evil queen's mirror, the you know mirror mirror on the wall. You don't know and him from Breaking Bad. No, I, I haven't gotten to that far yet. I'm only uh. two episodes, season two. But uh, yeah, what, what I'm watching all kinds of other things, man. <laughs> I got things to do. Uh, <laughs> but he's basically the same character as as the the magic mirror in Once Upon a Time, and I found it delicious and hilarious. So it, 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 it's able to mix and jumble all of these various tones in a, in a way that it, nothing feels out of place. When it does something comedic, it doesn't feel like it doesn't belong. When it gets super, super sad, it doesn't feel like it doesn't belong. It's, it's such an incredibly cohesive film. Um, but I would be lying if I didn't say that just going slow motion with cops and everybody throwing grenades and fire extinguishers to the tune of John Denver wasn't basically my aesthetic. Um, like once that scene happened and you hear John Denver start playing and everybody's fighting with cops and Okja is laying on the, on its back rolling around. I just felt it in my bones was like, this is a great, great, great movie. Um, yeah, it's on Netflix. I really highly recommend everybody watch it. It it is it does go to some really fucked up places when it shows these depictions of the slaughter industry, and it's it can be difficult to watch depending on the individual's uh, disposition towards it. It's not violent, like it's gory or anything like that, but it's it's so effectively well done and placed in just the right ways that. It maximizes the impact without being outlandish or over the top. Um, so be warned, but it's it's a very entertaining movie. Uh, the, the whole first hour happened, and I thought only 20 minutes had passed. Jake Gyllenhaal doesn't show up until 30 minutes into the movie, and I was like, "What? That's like the first scene. What are you talking about?" Um, but it really was. It really was just super wonderful. Um, and maybe when I rewatch John Wick 2 in the future. John Wick 2, I may, maybe I'll like it better than Okja, I don't know, but that's just how strong of an impression this film was just after one one sitting on a Saturday morning in my underwear. Right. <laughs> I was going to make a joke about calling it Ropeja, but... It's really good rope, okay? South Korean farmers that live in the mountains know how to make really good rope. All right, number five. Oops, uh, uh, Camelia, why is your number five? Um, I don't know if these are in order, except maybe my number one, but uh, oh well. All right, so for number five, I'm picking Tragedy Girls. 
if I have an overall theme theme for my list, it's that every movie is an indie movie. I I bought Tragedy Girls on Blu-ray, and it's uh it's just a BDR, which is uh, it at least has like a a screen print on the disc. But I when I opened it up, I'm like, yep this this uh this checks out. <laughs> <laughs> this is legal. Um, yeah, it's a. Uh, <clears throat> So, Tragedy Girls is like a uh, a twist on like the slasher genre. So it and it's like a a satire of like uh, social media. Uh, so Tragedy Girls is about uh, uh, two girls, Sadie and Michaela, and they're like obsessed with death. Um, so and they have like a Twitter account called Tragedy Girls, and they want to. Ascend to stardom uh, by covering uh, murders, tragedies. But to do it, they want to do the murders themselves. Uh, so <laughs> at the beginning of the movie, they capture a serial killer. Uh, and the serial killer is like a misogynistic, like sexist piece of shit. And they treat him like a dog, but his persona is also like that of a dog. Like they tie him to a chair and then like lock him in a closet and feed him dog food and they you know they ask him to like teach them how to be a serial killer but he's uh not very cooperative so they they go around like trying to you know get into trouble and like find people to murder and as they're starting out like the murders they do uh they get reported as like accidents and so they're like really disappointed that they're not getting like the the social recognition like the likes and retweets so like it uh escalates from there the the comedy is like really dark and uh absurdist some of the <laughs> some of the special effects are like really good but also not good but it, like adds to the charm of the movie like the like the dead bodies like when they're chopping up the dead bodies like it's clearly like a prop but it's pretty good and they're um obviously fake bodies are the best bodies in movies <laughs> All right, I watch a lot of seventy movies. All right, so like I am, I'm totally all about that obvious mannequin aesthetic. <laughs> I said that explains so much about you, Chris. Damn straight. That you like mannequins. Look, all right, Kim Cattrall and Andrew McCarthy. That is a wonderful, wonderful '80s movie. I will not have anyone. Speak <laughs> of what about Mannequin Two? Me. Hey, I'm a big fan of Fright Night. I watch Williams <laughs> Ragsdale anything. All right. All right. All right. Sorry to successfully derail this conversation again. Um, but uh, uh, they're they're in high school and uh, there's like you know high school stuff and uh, like I don't want to spoil anything, but like the the like the ending like the conflict at the end of the movie, like the way they resolve the conflict, uh, like the movie, like you're starting to wonder if there's like maybe humanity in the like in these characters, but. Uh, at the end of the movie, it's like, no, we're gonna double down, and it's really great. And, uh, they, uh, they, like, go, like, I wanna see a sequel, like, this is, like, they're graduating high school, and at the end of the movie, they're, like, going off to college to, like, uh, become even more infamous. Uh, so I want, like, a Tragedy Girls 2 where they kill people in college, cause that'd be pretty good. And when did, uh, when did this come out? Like, I've never heard of this movie, but this is, Sounds like Mean Girls, uh, but not with Tina Fey, which makes me feel better. Yeah, it dropped in Fantastic Fest back in September. 
But we we didn't us normal people. I don't think we got to see it until a couple weeks ago. Corey. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. All right, all right, all right. I'll have to check that out though. Sounds good. <laughs> it's uh, it's really funny. Like like the the juxtaposition between like how like depraved everything is with how like clumsy and like silly uh, and. Uh, just like 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 it's like it's nothing to them. Like it's just like oh yeah, we're you know we just flippant. Yeah, flippant. That... Yeah, that might work. Did you get around to seeing Happy Death Day? No. I, th- I think you'll enjoy that because it it also has a really silly tone and it plays with slasher formulas. It, it's totally different than this movie in in uh, every plot wise way. But I think you might dig the the comedy in that one. The way that they play with the formula to to humorous effect yeah and i I like how they don't um like the main characters in tragedy girls are fucking terrible people and they don't really they don't like try to excuse it it's it's just uh just like watching them just like watching like everything like fall down in their wake tragedy girls number five from camellia Corey, what is your number five uh my number five uh i ended up it was a pretty tight race here but uh it was the last movie that i saw uh from 2017 uh that was originally released on christmas but came out to mainstream audiences i did not want to drive down to chicago to see it um although i probably could have uh was uh phantom thread by paul thomas anderson starring daniel day lewis now, I don't think this is a perfect film. Uh, there's parts of the movie that actually kind of frustrate me, uh, but the performance, I mean, the technical sleekness and production of Paul Thompson's film, uh, if we want to talk about aesthetic, he's pretty goddamn close to uh, what I look for in, I don't want to say art house, I guess, uh, art house cinema. I mean, I think he's pretty much top dog. Pretty much the Scorsese, uh, uh, director that I'm looking for since Scorsese doesn't do a lot of, um, anymore. Nothing I can think of. Um, yeah, I, I love this film. I mean, it has some powerhouse acting in it. Uh, I was just a little miffed about how the story was constructed. Uh, but there are some great, fantastic moments in it. Uh, I really love the ending. Um, uh, but, yeah, I, I mean, I give it, I'm unreserved in my praise for it. And it, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson is a, the director that deserves your attention every time he puts something out. So, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. I don't know if anybody else has seen Phantom Thread here, but, uh. Nope, not yet. I have, I have not. I'm, I'm the worst Paul Thomas Anderson fan in that I actually don't watch his movies, but still admire him so greatly and buy them on Blu-ray and never watch them. I, I've, I've only, I've only, I've only fully watched one film by him. I fell asleep during the other one that I tried watching, um, and never went back. And I've seen pieces of Another Moon, but never went back to fully watch all of it. I am the worst. That said, Boogie Nights for Life. <laughs> So let's see here. You can't finish Breaking Bad, and you barely can finish a Paul Thomas Anderson film. How are we friends again? <laughs> because because of all the other components 
find us. Or was my assumption here flawed in, to begin with? We- <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I'm fucking with you, Chris. Uh, <laughs> you not need to justify your choices, uh, even the poor ones. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> um, yeah, but that's pretty much it. I mean, that's all I have to say about it. Go see it. All right. Number five, Phantom Thread. On to my number five, which is the fish fucking movie. Uh, yes. Shape of Water. Fish butts. Yep. Um, so I think I've been thinking about this movie uh, a lot since I saw it, and I I think it is uh, one of the best depictions of like positive female sexuality that I've seen uh, in a movie because like the, from the beginning of the movie she began or she. Like, the opening scenes are uh, her making her lunch, which I say lunch, but, like, she works the night shift at this museum cleaning it up. Or, is it a museum? Uh, it's, a, it's a government facility, the All whole right. thing. Government facility, whatever. She works the night shift cleaning wherever the fuck she works. Uh, so she sets her egg timer, she gets in the bath, and then she just starts masturbating. And, like, I think that kind of depiction is important because uh, we, we see all of these films including the shape of water where like michael shannon is having sex with his wife and he just, just be like, quiet yeah shut the fuck up i want to please myself which is <laughs> usually what we see in movies but now we're seeing this movie where uh fuck what's her name uh sally hawkins yeah sally hawkins is able to uh both masturbate to her, her heart's content and have sex with this fish person uh, it's just very pleasant, and th- this movie is basically about uh, about that. It's about this fish person that's ca- captured by Michael Shannon's character, and they're just kind of experimenting on him and uh, trying to study him. And this is set during the Cold War as well, so like they don't want any of the Russians to show up during it. And Michael Shannon's uh, partner from not partner, but you know, screen partner from Boardwalk Empire. Uh, I forgot what his IRL name is, but Arnold Rothstein in Boardwalk Empire. He shows up as a Russian operative who's the scientist, and he wants to help this fish thing because he wants to study it, not for uh, any Russian or American need, but because he is a scientist that wants to know these things. And he, uh, well, I don't want to say that part, but the the, the depictions of uh, of sex positivity are what I really love about this movie, uh, besides the fact that like it looks fantastic and like the underwater scenes between them, like they fill up their bathroom with water which is not uh, a realistic literally thing. yeah literally it's not a realistic <laughs> thing that could happen but it's just a visually stunning thing to see and in that opening scene we accept the the tone for the rest of the movie and that it's going to be somewhat fantastical because this whole room is filled with water everything is floating around in the water and then you see her wake up and the clock just says six uh but you eventually realize that that is 6 p.m., not 6 a.m. Like she's waking up because she works that night shift. Uh, Octavia Spencer plays her best friend. Uh, she, Sally Hawkins' character, is mute because she like had an accident when she was a kid and she can't. Her vocal cords were damaged, so she can't talk. She communicates in sign language, but she can hear. Uh, something that I appreciate about this film is that most of the time, if not all of the time, when she's talking, you can see her. You can see what she's signing, which if you recall the anime thing, a silent voice could not do that, and it annoyed me. F-U. 
See, <laughs> she's not saying. She said thank you, sir. She said thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, she just changed the sign from signing "fuck you" to <laughs> signing "thank you" once Octavia Spencer could actually see her. But yeah, it's a it's a fantastic film. Another from Guillermo del Toro, not the other one. Yeah, that's right. Not not Benicio. I, <laughs> I just I, I was just listening to that like yesterday, and the, and I was like, oh jeez. I thought you were gonna say uh, Despacito again. <laughs> For a second there. Benicio Despacito. <laughs> yeah, number five, Shape of Water. Uh, it kicked one off Lady Bergen. I'm sorry. Oh, they, that's good. That's fine. The one thing about Shape of Water, like a lot of movies stick with me and I think about them over and over again, but I find it, I find it really interesting. The, the one scene from the shape of water that I am constantly thinking about, um, I had never heard this quote unquote philosophy before in my life. Um, so when I saw it in the movie, I was like, what? I've never heard that before, but it's such a clear cut, uh, metaphor for, for one of the aspects that the film is trying to talk about and that's when Michael Shannon comes into the bathroom when Octavia Spencer and Sally Hawkins are cleaning. And he, he walks up, he washes his hands, and then he goes and takes a piss. And then he walks up and he's just getting ready to leave. And he's like, a man only washes his hands once. And that, and you can tell all, everything about a man when he washes his hands, either before or after, and but never twice. Mm-hmm. And, and that is such a clear-cut description like this is who michael shannon's character is he is a selfish asshole who only cares about himself um and and for also, some reason that's also like another uh sexual power play like he is revealing himself yeah. sort of to them and he's like i don't give a fuck i'm gonna rub my dick on everybody yeah <laughs> <laughs> like 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 for, it, it's so clear-cut and i don't know why but just that scene is like the one thing that sticks with me um over and over and over again, because every time I meet somebody or, you know, I, I encounter somebody at the store or something and I'm like, you're a fucking asshole. My brain is like, he washes his hands before he takes a piss. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is like is, my short, he probably doesn't wash his hands at all. He's probably. <laughs> no, that it's a, it's an incredible movie. Um, I, I want to sit down with Pan's Labyrinth again, because my first instinct was like, is this, Guillermo del Toro's best movie? No, it can't be. I don't be. know. Pan's it's Labyrinth really is fucking incredible. It is. Yeah, I haven't seen that. Oh, what? I also, yeah, I know. I also like the uh, the the neighbor character. The uh, the old guy. Yeah, yeah. Richard Jenkins. Yeah. Oh, he's, he's awesome. He's great. Right? Yeah, and he had like the little the little scenes with him. I wish it was a little subtler with it, um, with how that guy get up. Uh, it was a little too on the nose. I don't know. I mean, seeing his fridge full of that shitty cake because he likes to go to that place to, like, pine over the the dude across the counter. I don't know. I thought that was cute. Yeah, but it, like, it didn't necessarily need the scene. The scene. The, at the, the end? Scene. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the scene where uh, before that, where yeah, they're like, "Oh, you're gay, ew." No, the the scene before that where he's like, oh. "No, you can't sit here. These are reserved." Oh, yeah, super sad. Well, but that's one of the things that I liked about the movie is it's not trying to be super subtle. Like th- this, Shape of Water is so earnest 
and honest about what it wants to to be about and what it wants to to tell the audience like like the the whole her being mute like i don't know if this is just how my brain works but that whole storyline was no surprise to me from the very instance when it showed the three slashes on her throat Mm -hmm. that from a child from from her childhood that showed that, that that's why she can't talk i was like oh it's the little mermaid she she lost her voice ursula took her voice her gills are sealed up and she's living among the humans and that's a non-surprising way to to tell the story another movie that came out this year called the lure which is also amazing from poland it's a super hyper violent burlesque musical about mermaids it's 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 just another way to tell the little mermaid story which i'm fine with that but yeah a lot of the a lot of what the shape of water it's not super subtle if the more you know or the way your brain thinks the less secrets the film holds but it's still so engagingly told that it doesn't matter you still cry and get happy exactly when the movie wants you to yeah i mean i i appreciated it um i'm a big gdt fan but uh i i did wish it was more subtle because i felt like there the movie felt like it i mean the main character is doesn't talk and when this movie does talk feels less magical especially uh i don't know i for some reason if it was i felt like if it was more subtle the more i would connect but it's about that longing and not being able to express yourself um and then finally being able to with uh that is uh i guess power that they were going for um and i think they do still achieve it yeah i don't know um, I'm, I'm pro, I'm, I'm team Pan's Labyrinth. That's what I'm saying here. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, it's still a good movie. Yep. So. Yeah, uh, quick shout out to Doug Jones, who played the, the fish dude, and it was, was amazing. Not to be confused with the senator from Alabama. <laughs> uh, is this his second or third, uh, fish person that he's played? He plays Abe Sapien in the, the Hellboy movies. And he's also uh, in Star Trek Discovery as a oh, fish-like alien, too. Commander Saru. Yeah, if you see him, he looks kind of like a mix between a crustacean and a turtle uh, and fish. He just really likes makeup. He basically... Looks like all the Finding Nemo put together. <laughs> <laughs> so shout outs to him. <laughs> yeah. All right. So Wait, yeah, that's one way to get typecasted. Uh, I'm <laughs> the fishman. Don't worry. <laughs> I got this. All right. So number five, uh, Shape of Water. Let's go on to number fours. Amelia, what's your number four? Uh, my number four is Prevenge. Oh boy. Oh yeah. Prevenge is amazing. Uh, so pre, I think Prevenge was like like uh, so it's directed, written, and starring Alice Lowe, and uh, she came up with the movie because she was pregnant at the time, and she was like, "What the fuck? I should be able to do stuff while I'm pregnant." Uh, so she came up with this movie, and I think she shot it in like eleven days. So uh, Prevenge, I think it's an allegory for like a. Like it, it's dealing with prenatal depression. So uh, the movie is so Alice Lowe's character Ruth. Um, 
she finds out she's pregnant on the day her husband dies. And so her fetus gets, uh, like, like through her husband's death, her, like, fetus gains, like, sentience and is basically commanding Ruth to go murder the people that were involved with her husband's death. So her fetus uh, talks to her, like, throughout the movie, telling her to kill these people. So her, her husband dies in a climbing accident, and it's a bunch of people, and they're, like, all roped together, and he was at the end of the rope, and they were like, oh, we got to save our, you know, the only way to save everyone is to cut you off. So they cut him off, and he dies. So Ruth uh, goes throughout the movie killing these people, and it starts off, like, like as justifiable as killing someone could be. Um, <laughs> uh, they start off, like, like super terrible people. Like, the first person she kills is, like, this really creepy, maybe a pedophile, um, like, disgusting, like, pet shop owner, you know? And as she goes through her list of these people, like, it gets less and less justifiable because the line of, like, you're clearly a terrible person just gets murkier and murkier until she has to confront uh, the reality of her situation. And... So what's really great about this movie, like, uh, it's got really good dark humor. And, you know, as with why uh, Alice Lowe came to make the movie in the first place, like, it's really good at upending these stereotypes of uh, what it means to be pregnant. And that, oh, you're pregnant, so that means you're weak, you can't do anything for yourself, you need to just go, like, do nothing. And it also confronts, like, how fucking weird it is that you have a thing growing inside of you. And, you know, the expectations of being a mother. Uh, and it's just, it's really good. So I haven't seen it yet because, as far as I know, it was only available on Shudder, and I don't subscribe to Shudder. Uh, it's but, uh, on, you can rent it anywhere, I think, now. Okay. So. But but I don't, I, don't, I don't remember if I heard you say it, but isn't it the baby is telepathically telling her to go murder people? Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't know if... I guess telepath. Like, yeah, the fetus talks to her and says, like, you got to go kill this person. You know, she, Alice, uh, Ruth, uh, she talks back to the fetus. Uh, and she has, like, she has, she has this, like, children's, like, scrapbook kind of thing where she, like, draws with crayon. It's like her hit list. Uh, and it's, like, it's Ruth drawing it, but, like, as, like, but it's being expressed as, her daughter would express it, uh, the fetus. So it's like really childish and, but you know, it's like talking about murdering people and it has like, like all sorts of shit in there. Like, you know, sex is pig. And like, like one of the people she kills is, uh, is like, it's a woman that, uh, is like, is like, is in this, like the, like the system of business and like the misogyny therein, but she's also, forwarding that misogyny so she's also complicit with it so she deserves to die obviously but uh it's really good there's uh you know content warning there is uh alice uses a ableist slur in the movie and that was really not cool but and it you know it's in there for flavor or whatever it's not like commenting on anything so that's unfortunate but it's great more i want more female serial killers only john wick three in movies not real ones <laughs> all right good clarification uh so number four prevenge Corey, it's your number four. Oh, me yes. me 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 so uh mine is a summer blockbuster that came out 
Um, and I was surprised by the lack of excitement around it. Just because, um, no. Fuck yeah, it's buddy. the third entry to a trilogy, though. And, um, it is War of the Planet of the Apes. Uh, so, uh, most people that followed me and listened to uh, my other movie thoughts on other podcasts know that, uh, the Planet of these Planet of the Apes movies are, uh, I think, fantastic uh, blockbusters, and uh, that Caesar, uh, played by uh, Gollum, is <laughs> probably one of the best. <laughs> Andy Circus, guys, Andy Circus. It was a joke. <laughs> um, uh, that it's he's probably one of my favorite uh, cinematic heroes uh, in recent times, if not all time. Uh, and is a fantastic character, and this is his uh, goodbye and his biggest test as a leader of people uh, that uh, is being uh, preyed upon uh, through no fault of their own, other than people see them as a threat um, for good reasons and not so good reasons. Um, yeah, so, I mean, the trilogy has been laced throughout about uh, bigotry and uh, inferiority complexes and what it takes to be a leader. And I think this movie wrapped up uh, quite incredibly uh, by bringing in a new scenario. It also makes it um, slightly more lighthearted because they bring, bring in Steve Zahn as a new character uh, um, to flesh out the world. And, uh, the new, and he brings a healthy dose of physical comedy uh, that is uh, takes the edge off of how dark this movie really um I was I was wondering about that. I was like, is he still just Steve Zahn or is he actually a different character? Sounds no, like he's, he's just Steve He's Zahn. actually really fantastic as like uh this uh new ape that comes into their lives uh during their journey. And um no, I think he's like one of the MVPs because of that. I mean Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, which I think is one of the best blockbusters of all time. I mean, that movie got dark and kind of unrelentingly so by the end, um, just because it was building to what is an impossible choice that has to be made, uh, which uh, is quite fantastic. Here, uh, to counterbalance uh, the next... The next step, or I should say, the the context of the dark psychology that Caesar goes through, uh, they bring in somebody that uh, you know is an outsider to the horrors that he uh, that Caesar and his people have been wrought. Which uh, not that Steve Zahn's character had like was not tortured or anything like that. You know, it's just another perspective that uh, really uh, lightens what is an inherently uh, dark and desperate situation sometimes. And it's not like big overarching actions. It's just like sometimes it's how he uh, just reaction, reactions that happen and that play out. And they're funny. But uh, other than that, I mean, the characters, uh, Woody Harrelson plays... Uh, the main antagonist as this military uh, leader uh, uh, general type dude 
uh, feels um, very Kubrickian, very full metal jacket. Uh, it did bring uh, Passive Glory into to mind as well. Uh, you know, Apocalypse Now uh, is directly referenced uh, is a lot throughout the movie as well. Uh, so, yeah, I mean... Please tell me they, they don't copy the, the famous shot of Martin Sheen coming out of the water. If it's anything but that, okay, but I'm just tired of that being the reference shot from Apocalypse Now. No, 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 uh, no, there's a, I think they call it a, uh, like, it's, it's like, mirrored across a wall, says, like, Apocalypse Now, it's something like that, if okay. I'm, anyways, it's, but the aesthetic and, uh, you know, the, the grimy, uh, grim nature of, uh, the warfare, uh, scenes, which there are not a lot of. Uh, I actually, uh, I heard this on it somewhere, uh, a while ago. Uh, it's, it would have been more aptly titled if it was called Skirmish of the Planet of the Apes. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, and yeah, it's true because the, the scale of this movie is actually far smaller than, uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Uh, so, which I think is a good idea. I mean, let's look at other trilogies that try to keep on building and raising stakes even higher. Uh, uh, within their stories and see how they all fail. Dark Knight Rises, <laughs> uh, Matrix Woof. 3, yeah. Uh, you know, these types of blockbusters that keep on doing, just escalating their existing stakes don't usually pan out very well. Uh, and this one completely changes it, uh, by making it more of an adventure, uh, and a, a journey, uh, than anything else. So, yeah. Uh, War of the Planet of the Apes. It's a fantastic movie. Uh, I feel like it also got overlooked by the majority of uh, the major press and uh, the film-going community in general. And I think that is undeserved uh, for being one of probably the best trilogies of all time, especially in our modern era here. So, yeah. War of the Planet of the Apes. Check it out. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. These Planet of the Apes reboot movies are probably the meatiest blockbusters in decades. Like, these things, they're, they're so incredibly good. Um, I just, I haven't seen War yet. That's, that's my own fault. Uh, but the first two films are great. And I don't remember anyone talking about War. Like, it still made enough money, I think. So people went and saw it, but it's been completely absent from any kind of conversation that people have been having about movies this year. Even even when people are talking about the best summer movies, you know, focusing only on the blockbusters, I, I, I never heard anyone talking about War of the Planet of the Apes. It's kind of crazy. Because yeah, like, was, Dawn was such a big deal. That was everywhere that year that came out. Yeah, and for good reason. I mean, that movie is... Yeah, I think that movie is pretty much perfect in, in a lot of ways. Uh, and this movie has, like, uh, some incredibly, like, uh, moving scenes, uh, uh, that use no words whatsoever again. Like, that's the beauty of this, uh, of, like, uh, the ape clan that, uh, these, that is portrayed here in that there's, there's a real sense of community, uh, here that is, that is feeling hurt together and, uh, 
when they show strength, it is, you know, very powerful uh, and incredibly moving to see, which, I mean, and that that sense of emotion and uh, movement and revolution, uh, you know, that is very reflective of, you know, real-life events that happen. And to see uh, people take action with uh, their and for their community and for the good of all people is exhilarating to see that so well and portrayed without words, you know, especially with the, the, the apes and their sign language and their small uh, gestures that they do. Uh, it just it is incredible uh, to see. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's super good. Like, man, I watched it a couple of weeks ago, and I was just like, yeah, this movie, this movie is right up there. i baffled still. That's, that's it. All right. War of the Planet of the Apes, number four. Uh, on to my number four, which is a repeat. Gasp. Uh, my number four Already? is... Already? Also Okja. <laughs> Roka! Uh, it was so good, you guys. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I reiterate everything Chris said, and I just want to uh, make uh, put some more focus on Steven Yeun's character. Um, the the girl, Mija, only speaks Korean, and Steven Yeun, uh, both in real life and in the movie, speaks like conversational Korean. Uh, and is of course fluent in English. Um, so like when the the animal, what they call them, animal league force, no, that's liberation not right. front, liberation, liberation front. All right, uh, a real <laughs> terrorist organization, by the way. Yeah. Uh, so when they the Justice League of Animals. Yeah, when they pick up uh, Okja and Mija, they basically say we want to use Okja as bait. And Misha is like, no, we just want to go home. And Steven Yeun, and she's saying this in Korean, Steven Yeun is like, she's like, okay, let's do it. I uh, so sad. He has a, a, some redemption later on. Paul Dano has a great scene with her later where he has uh, cards written in both English and Korean that say exactly what he wants to do and like apologizing and stuff. Um, Steven Yeun gets it tattooed on his arm that translation is sacred or something. Translations are sacred, yep. yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's just great to be able to see a movie where, uh, you know, it's not just in English and they're, like, actually speaking in different languages. Uh, and a lot of it is not subtitled as well because we as the audience are not supposed to know what Misha is saying most of the time. Um, as opposed to, like, Black Panther, which has a lot of subtitles because they're speaking in Wakandan. And we should know what they're saying in Wakandan, but this one we don't necessarily need to know what they're saying in Korean. We just need to know that they are speaking in Korean. But yeah, Okja is very good. So, Chris, what's your number four? Oh, Okja is so good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, my number four came out in April, I think. Um, and it, it was a movie that I was looking forward to a lot. Um, and I had a very particular impression of what I, what I was expecting based off of the marketing material. And when I sat down to watch it, it proved to, to, to be so much more than what the marketing material was, was offering. And what the movie ultimately became is so much, so much better and so much more empowering than 
it could have been if they made the movie that the ads tried to tell you. And, and I preface that because I feel in, in this, in the case of this movie, that the marketing material, while successful in getting butts in seats, is misleading enough to where people who actually see the movie could either be caught blindsided or be hurt so emotionally because of the content of the film um, that they would reject it. I, I feel that the movie should be honestly spoken about, and that is Nacho Vigalondo's Colossal, starring Anne Hathaway and Justin Sudeikis. Um, Nacho Vigalondo, is, he's a filmmaker that I've known about for many years, but I never actually sat down to watch either Time Crimes or um, Open Window, his Time two Crimes previous is movies. Good. And so this one came out, and it, just the premise of it, like, it, it, it caught me. So the, the idea is that there is a giant kaiju, you know, a Godzilla villain, basically, who is rampaging through throughout Seoul, uh, Korea. And it is it is discovered that um, the the kaiju that is destroying Korea is actually Anne Hathaway when she uh, walks onto a a a playground that she used to play on. Uh, no, no, she didn't. It, it wasn't there when she was a kid, uh, but it, it has since been built there. Whenever she goes into that playground, all of a sudden this kaiju monster. Uh, materializes out of thin air in Korea. So when she moves, it moves. And so she's just walking through a, a, a playground from one end to the other the first time. Um, she's just walking straight through. As soon as she enters into the sand, the monster appears and destroys half of Korea, but just by walking. And then once she leaves the playground, the monster disappears. This, this all ties into this overarching story of Anne Hathaway, she's living in New York, and she has found her life to be a mess. She can't hold a job. She can't maintain personal relationships. She's an alcoholic. But it's one of those, oh, no, she just drinks like everybody else. It's like, no, she's an alcoholic. The, the She drinks for a purpose, and it has a negative impact on her life. Whether she's drinking to excess, like you think a, an alcoholic should be, or she's just drinking like everybody else does, it's a problem and it impacts her life. So she she ends up leaving New York. Um, she in the process of leaving New York, she leaves her boyfriend, who is played by the amazing Dan Stevens, who um, also had a great year. He was Beast in Beauty and the Beast, Le Legion, which is one of two superhero TV shows I've watched, and I will not watch another superhero TV show unless it is better, as good or better than Legion. Um, and of course, I cannot talk a top five movie podcast without bringing up the guest yet again um <laughs> the guest is amazing um so yes so dan stevens plays her boyfriend so she leaves leaves him leaves new york and goes back to her uh, childhood home um i don't i don't i don't know where it is but it's somewhere in the midwest population 3000 you know small town middle america uh, when she returns home she ends up uh working part-time at a local bar that is owned and operated by Justin S Jason Sudeikis. Um, I don't know why I keep saying Justin. Uh, he, he, he does not make Blu-rays for Discotech Media. He is a comedian. Um, and so, and Jason Sudeikis is also a childhood friend. And this is, this is where I'm going to say quote unquote spoilers, but this is what I think is really important 
um, to, to message about the movie. This is marketed as a comedy. When you watch the trailers, her walking into the playground and, oh, she's scratching her head and doing a little dance. And then the TV is showing the monster in Seoul also scratching her head and doing a little dance. And, it, and later on, uh, when Jason Sudeikis steps into the playground, a giant robot materializes in Korea. So you, you have Jason Sudeikis and Anne Hathaway just hanging out in a playground. Meanwhile, in Korea, everybody is being terrorized by a giant robot and the evil kaiju. And that's how the, the people of Korea and the people of the world interpret it, is the giant robot is here to save them from the evil monster. This movie is not a comedy. This movie is about emotional abuse and the victims and survivors of emotional abuse and how emotional abuse can ruin your life. Um, and, and it, 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 I think about halfway through the movie is when that, like all of a sudden it just like jumps out and you realize, Oh no, this is what the movie's actually saying. And when it hits um, for actual people who have emotional PTSD from an abusive relationship, this movie's going to side, you know, smack you so hard across the side of the head. You're not going to know what happened, and you may react very negatively to the film. Um, I think ultimately, by the end of the film, it's very uplifting, and it even has a fuck yeah, you know, stand up and cheer moment for for abuse victims. Um, it, it's really powerful and it's really effective. I just think that I just think that like that should be like a content warning. They should not have tried to hide that in the marketing. Um, so once again, like with Okja, this film has very dark themes, very negative tones to it. Uh, but it's also it also is very funny. The moments that they show you in the trailers that make you snicker that got your butt to the seat. They are actually very funny. And it does a really good job of juggling those tones, just like I was saying with Okja. Um, it juggles between these very disparate tones and it, you don't quite know if, if, if that should be funny or if that should be appalling. And the film plays with that really, really well. Um, I was just absolutely blown away by it. And I, I understand like a lot of people were like, Oh no, it was just fine. It was, it was a good movie. Um, the, the whole core of the film being about emotional abuse, the perpetrators, the victims surviving it and moving beyond it. I felt was so powerful that it enhanced every other aspect of the film. And it's also a rollicking good time where you get to watch a giant robot and a giant kaiju duke it out in the middle of Seoul, Korea. Absolutely recommend uh, Colossal, uh, but be aware of the content going in so that you're not blindsided. It's, it's very powerful stuff. It's not a lighthearted com comedic romp. Yeah, I really wanted to see Colossal, but I ended up not getting around to it. You should. I think it's available everywhere now because it came out on, on video back in August or September. and I, So I think it's on Netflix and Amazon. Everywhere. Quote, unquote. Going to Burger King. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> Let's, uh, we have two lists. People need to watch more movies or at least tweet at us about their watching movies. Maybe we should stop like having our anime circle. I think that might be part of the problem because a lot of people just watch anime. Yeah, that's, that's true. Um, all right, so uh, the our first list that we got is from Tone Dog. Uh, number six, Baby Driver. Number five, Dunkirk. Number four, Tour de Pharmacy. Number three, Chris Gathard, Career Suicide. Number two, Nathan For You, Finding Francis. And number one, Your Name. 
I have no idea what three of those are. <laughs> like, is one of them a wrestling match that no, is classified no. as a movie? I think that Tour to Pharmacy is that HBO thing that was comedy. It had, uh, uh, what's his name? The biker that's Neil Armstrong. No? Is that right? Lance Armstrong? Lance Armstrong. All right, there we go. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's uh, a comedy thing. He, he was in there, and uh, some of the some of the old SNL guys were in there as well. Chris Cathard, I think, is uh, a comedy special. I'm not sure. I don't know what Nathan for you is at all. It's Nathan a, for you is a, a comedy TV show. show. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess Finding Francis is a, a TV movie or something they did, or maybe it's a stand-up. Yeah, sure. Um, whatever. <laughs> Your name, top of the list, baby. Woo. Yeah, so good. Yeah, it's not on my list because it was on my anime list. <laughs> and I, you know, I was already kicking stuff off that I liked. <laughs> Let's take a short break and then we'll get into the number of threes. Remember me. Though I have to say goodbye. Remember me. Don't let it make you cry. Or even if I'm far away, I hold you in my heart. I sing a secret song to you. Each night we are apart. Remember me. Though I have to travel far. Remember me. Uh, so, Corey, what is your number three? Uh, my number three, uh, speaking of anime, is in, in this corner of the world. It's hard to, like, uh, I know that we were having before this, uh, discussions <laughs> about when a movie gets released and stuff like that as and uh about but uh it, it did definitely come out last year in august uh when i saw it and um but i think it was an uh was it initially coming out it initially came out in japan in 2016 i'm not sure um but there was no way to see it uh and it finally got a release here and pretty much worldwide if i'm not mistaken uh this year uh not this year 2017 anyways uh it's about a young woman uh named suzu uh who is a small town girl uh uh living in a lonely uh, world she took the midnight train God damn it. I knew it was gonna go there. Do it. Uh, no, in Hiroshima. Uh, and basically this is about, uh, her being basically, her life being stripped away from her because of war, uh, with the US. And how she, I'm giving a very general overview because there's not too much to this movie other than, um, an incredible portrayal of life, sorrow, and trying to find hope in a hopeless scenario in, in some cases uh, with her family and with her, her friends uh, that she comes to meet. It's and how you eventually find, uh, you know, a will to live a fulfilling life again after being completely and utterly derailed by outside forces uh, that you have no control over um, to, you know. And I, I don't know, I, I found the movie to be incredibly moving. Uh, it's incredibly well animated. Uh, I know there there is more, like, extra-textual kinds of things after reading uh, interviews 
uh, director uh, about this, uh, you know, and I think this movie was not as highly celebrated as one other major anime uh, film release, which was Your Name, uh, but I definitely preferred this one. I thought this one lasted longer in my in the back of my mind after I watched it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm assuming all three of you guys have seen this as well. I've seen it, yeah. I have not, actually, because I'm totally lazy. I skipped it during <laughs> Otakon because... I skipped it during Otakon because me, Corey, and Dana went to go have amazing Ethiopian food that everybody thought I was going to die from because I chose the raw meat. <laughs> and uh, and then it came out on video, and I said, oh, okay, it's on video now. I'll get it eventually. Yeah, I, I own it. I just haven't watched it. I haven't even gotten to the to the purchase part yet. I'm that, I'm that terrible. I'm sitting over here shaking my head. <laughs> just, anyways... No, you're in for a great treat once you sit down and actually watch good things. Um, Chris, we should watch whoa, it when I whoa, drive through your place. <laughs> there, there you go. Bring it with you. I don't know where it is. I'll have to find it. Okay. okay. <laughs> no, um, but yeah, I, this movie is fantastic. So sit down and watch it. Uh, yeah, pretty much all I have to say with it about it. All right. Number three. In this corner of the world. Uh... On to my number three, which is The Florida Project, the movie with no one that I remember except for William Defoe. Well, I don't think anyone else has a name. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, the Florida Project is just about this uh, this little girl and her mom who lives in this extended stay hotel uh, on the outskirts of Disney World. Um, so he, the hotel is called, like, the Magic Kingdom or something. Um as I Google it, Magic Castle. Uh, so the little girl is called Mooney, the mom is called Haley, and they are just trying to, like, live through life. You see her buying uh, various uh, makeup and perfume products at the warehouse price, and then selling it off to tourists at the fancier hotels, being like, your wife will love this, and, like, that's how they're able to get by. Um... There's some, later, some, like, really insidious stuff that happens. Uh, like, I was tweeting at Casey earlier, and I'm like, you know, a bathtub scene in the Florida Project while it's happening is just a bathtub scene, and it's kind of, uh, you, you know, of course, kids have to take a bath, and the mom might not be there at the time, and that's fine. And then you get to the end of the movie, and it's like, wow, that was kind of a really fucked up scene. It's just that kind of movie where uh, it's showing how difficult it is for some people to just live their lives because of uh, because of extreme poverty or the the lack of ability to accumulate wealth. It's like heartbreaking and harrowing and great all at once. That's a good pick. If I were to uh, do a Chris, and certainly beyond like one of my fifteen honorable mentions. Damn straight, movies are good, guys. All, all, all of you, all three of you, should watch all the movies in all the world. And I only watched forty-three this year, so I'm a slacker. I only watched thirty. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know how many I watched. I only watched twenty from this year, but I watched more than that, like in general. Oh, oh! In general, oh, yeah, yeah. I watched two hundred and eighty-four. <laughs> oh, I didn't watch that many, but yeah, I was probably like a hundred over a hundred. Yeah, the letterbox tells me two hundred and eighty-four. So, 
I don't know why I didn't watch Florida Project. Yeah, I don't know how many I watched. Where do I see how many I watched? Oh, I logged 84 films in 2017. That's not uh, and I didn't count. I probably saw, like, maybe 30 in the theaters and then a bunch more outside of the theaters. It was actually a fairly strong summer for me. Uh, that's also because I uh, let the love in again for uh, comic book films, which I have, uh, you know, I swore off them a couple of years ago. Uh, and, you know, now it's, I was like, I'm emotionally ready to get back into the Marvel Universe and see where it's at. And now I'm just like uh, reserved in my apathy <laughs> for uh, the plotting of them and... Yeah. So, yeah. And, uh, you know, we got at least one decent DC film. Uh, one good one? Yeah. I did see both of them. Um, I'm sorry. Of course. Uh, well, I didn't pay for uh, I didn't pay for the other ones. So I didn't care that much. I was like, it's not as bad. But then I remember some people are spending like $22 to see this in 3D on an ultra screen or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Like oh my god! Like <laughs> you could have bought oh. the movie and then watch it unlimited times for that much. Which uh, is why I actually buy more Blu-rays and I go to the theater for that exact purpose. Yeah, uh, it's getting kind of interesting that way. Uh, and then there was a lot of sci-fi that happened this year. Blade Runner. Uh, yeah, we'll probably talk about that later. Uh, and then of course. Uh, one of my favorite films that did not make my top ten again. If, if like Florida Project, if I made like a list of twenty-seven films, Chris Kirby style, I would uh, I would have <laughs> Alien Covenant definitely on there. Oh no! <laughs> oh no! Look, all right. So you you have just now gotten to the the revelation where you can no longer make fun of any of our picks about. We should watch more good movies because oh, you, you watched Alien Covenant. It, it is the most misunderstood movie of <laughs> since the Master. <laughs> no, since Prometheus. Come on, hey, no, hey, no, Prometheus was not good. Hey. No, Prometheus was hey. bad. Prometheus. Prometheus was what? Bad. What? Prometheus no. was bad. <laughs> what? No, Prometheus is good. Uh, oh. <laughs> Are we talking oh, about the movie Prometheus or like the TV show Prometheus and Bob? The, the movie. I'm talking about. Uh, so yeah, the project. I, I'm. I'm. I. I hope to see it. I still haven't seen the director's previous film Tangerine, yeah, so I can't I. guarantee to see the Florida because yeah, I spent much time watching '70s horror movies. You should definitely watch the Florida Project. It is fantastic. You will love every second of it. These are kind of horrible kids. I have to like learn how to be slightly less horrible too. Those are the best kinds of kids. Yeah, like one of the opening scenes is just they're all spitting on someone's car. <laughs> I don't know why that just makes me laugh. There's another movie that I saw relatively recently that it was kids spitting over a bridge, which is a time-honored tradition. But I don't remember what that movie was. Oh yeah, there's... I don't know why, but I always I for some reason. Uh, I think that happened in, like, uh, It, but it definitely didn't. No. All right, number three, Florida Project. <laughs> uh, Chris, what's your number three? My number three, if anybody has ever listened to the previous podcasts where I talk about my favorite movies, 
follow me on Twitter or know me in any kind of less than purely superficial is the film that everybody knew would be on my list. And that is Darren Aronofsky's Amazing Mother, starring Jennifer Lawrence, Ed Harris, Javier Bardem, and Michelle Pfeiffer, the dude who was Hux in the new Star Wars movies. So many fucking people in this film. So I, Mother is one giant allegory that has about four or five different themes running through it. And I don't know how much I want to talk about it. So Darren Aronofsky, when when Mother was released to theaters, he flat out like wrote a letter and was like, this is what the movie is about, people. Let's calm down, which he's a coward because no real self-respecting filmmaker would ever do that. He would say, fuck you, figure it out. Um, so you can go on the Internet and you can find out what the movie is about if if you don't understand. And. I think that's really cool because if someone goes and sees the movie and they didn't quite understand what he was going for, the official word from the writer and director will inform you. Um, but I think for, for people who would understand it, I think it, it was very fun to discover that. Um, cause when I saw it, my, my girlfriend doesn't have the same background, um, as I do. So she didn't catch on to the main allegory of the film. She was picking up on the, the numerous theme, um, sub themes that are running through the film. And me, I picked up on the allegory about 25 minutes in and I was like, holy shit, this is incredible. And it only got more insane as it went on. Um, and then talking with her later about what she pulled from the film, what I pulled from the film and squishing it together was even more fun. For me and this is definitely not a movie that is fun um so the, oh. the, the premise of the film without talking about the allegory is there's a giant house in the middle of nowhere jennifer lawrence plays mother javier bardeen plays uh father and they live in this they just live in this house one day ed harris shows up and then ed harris's wife michelle pfeiffer shows up and then their kids show up and one of them kills the other and then there's a whole party there for the wake. And then there's rain and a storm and people won't stop sitting on the goddamn sinks because the sinks aren't braced yet. Not reinforced. And they're, they're not braced. They're not reinforced. And the sinks break. And all of a sudden, hundreds and hundreds of people flood to the house. And there's all these people in the house and they start creating different factions. People are shooting other people. People are eating other people. It's the most fucking insane movie to come out in 2017. And once you pick up or, you know, post, uh, you know, after the fact, read about the, the allegory, all of it makes 100% perfect sense. And it's the biggest gut punch um, that you would feel like the film has such disdain for its subject, such disdain for humans as a as as we are the the way that we have lived and continue to live not individual people because there are of course good people all around but the general direction that humanity has driven towards the last oh let's say 10,000 years all of the performances are simply wonderful nobody ever plays it to the point where they they let the the secrets slip out. So everything is, a lot of it is without full context. So they, everybody's just talking about the sinks not being braced. 
why aren't you listening to me? And, 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 and there's no running plot. There's no, there's no, this inciting incident happens. There's a development. There's a climax. There's a resolution. It's just a bullet train going from it's only mother and father in the house to there are a million people in this motherfucker and it is a hellhole and it must all be destroyed. This is exactly my type of movie. Um, I love the, the allegory. I love the way that Aronofsky tells that story through a new lens. I love the fact that it's also about struggling with art. I love the fact that it's also about narcissistic relationships. I love the fact that it's also about domestic abuse. But the way that all of those themes tie into the main allegory really tells you so much about Aronofsky. And that's one of the things that I really love about movies is when people put so much of themselves into their art that you can watch it and you feel like you're making a connection with the author, um, with with the creator. And this is 100% an auteur film. Aronofsky controlled it, wrote it, directed it. He had his mitts on it. And it is literally, without any hyperbole, the riskiest thing that happened in cinema this year because Paramount bankrolled a $60 million obscure-ass art house or obtuse-ass art house film and pushed it into 2,000 screens worldwide and tricked so many people into seeing this movie because of Jennifer Lawrence. I respect that like no other. Like They took Transformers money and said, let's give it to an artist who will create something wholly unique, entirely individual, that maybe not accessible or mainstream in any sort, and we are going to put it out there. That is the coolest fucking thing. Yeah, the movie did not make its money back, and Paramount doesn't care. Like They, they, they were like, we know. We knew this movie wasn't going to make its money back, but they believed in what Aronofsky was doing and I think it paid off and I and that's that's my ideal scenario you go and you make you know you go and you make Captain America Civil War earn 800 billion fucking dollars or whatever take that money and do something risky do something interesting don't just make Captain America Civil War 2 to earn another 800 billion you know and, and that's what Paramount did here, and I love them for it. It will never happen again, most likely. I feel as if Aronofsky's next film will be independently financed, which is fine because I am there for it. Um, it's top three Aronofsky for me. Um, it really is simply incredible, and I, I I never really talked to anybody about it because a lot of people didn't go see it. But I would just love to sit down with someone who absolutely did not understand what the film was doing and thought it was chaos and then to talk through it with them that's what i did with my girlfriend after the movie and that was the most exhilarating experience was just talking it through um afterwards incredible i love i love mother and everything about it is what i want out of my cinema and the fact that it came out in the year 2017 i, I fucking cannot believe it this movie is crazy be warned, trigger warnings, there are dead babies. Um, it's very graphic and, and horrific. It's all part of the madness. Um, it's Once you get to the final half hour, if you can make it out of there without just screaming, I don't know what you're going <laughs> to 
right. Yeah, I wasn't a big fan of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I appreciate it, but... Well, you're wrong. I, I usually am in your eyes. You like macaroni and cheese, bro. Like, better than any other food in the world. Uh, What's wrong true. with macaroni and cheese? I, I, I like... It's not better than any other food. I love pasta. Pasta is so good. It's not better than anything else, though. It's better than a lot of things. Dirt. Stuff like that, yeah. Mm, what? Yeah. what? It's better than a lot of other things. It's not just... Alright, so number three. Mother. Camellia. With an exclamation point. Camellia, you're number three. Uh, okay. Uh, I watched this movie last night. <laughs> And uh, it's not going to make anyone else's list ever. I don't even know. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway. So uh, so my last three movies here are uh, the... They're all uh, women-on-woman romance. So, uh, so my third uh, is Heartland. So well, when I watched my number one movie, it was uh, distributed by Wolf uh, Video. And they distribute a lot of LGBT stuff. Like, that's their specialty. And when I got the DVD in the mail, um, there was like, it came with like a catalog, and so I was like reading through it, and some of the, there were two other movies on there, they're like, oh, these are 2017 movies, you know, and I want like a nice romance, so this is one of those. So it's, um, I mean, it's got problems, but like the stuff that it does well, I think it does really well. So it's about, uh, this woman, Lauren, uh, and at the beginning of the film, her girlfriend, Nicole, dies of cancer. And so it starts off with her dealing with, uh, like, coming to terms with the death of her lover. And, like, at the beginning of the movie, like, it kind of comes off as, uh, like, this is, like, coming from my own, like, biases, like, kind of, like, stilted or, like, like the wrong interpretation like you're not grieving properly which is fucked up and not you know you know everyone grieves differently but you know that was just my like biases and stereotypes like coming forward but like by the end of the movie they like show like uh like she actually was grieving she's grieving in her own way which is kind of destructive so she goes uh she she was in the hospital like caring for her girlfriend for like four months so she loses her job and she runs out of money and she gets evicted so she has to move back in with her mom uh in oklahoma and so it's it's like right in the middle of like really conservative like religious like like purity innocent like kind of like weirdness i mean it all plays off as like well these are all like normal people but also the, what the fuck uh and it, it doesn't really confront that stuff to the end and it doesn't confront the bigotry like directly like as much as i would like uh but i don't know how much of that is like character or not but i still think like it should it should make a stronger statement on like homophobia and stuff like that but uh when she goes back to her, her mom's house, like, she doesn't get any support from her mom because her mom refuses to acknowledge that, you know, she's a, uh, her daughter's a lesbian. And her brother and her brother's girlfriend come by uh, because they're starting her brother, Justin, and then her brother's girlfriend, Carrie. Carrie's uh, father, like, owns, like, this wine company. And so they're Justin and Carrie are trying to, like, expand, like, 
the winery into Oklahoma, which is kind of <laughs> growing grapes is in Oklahoma. I didn't really know you could do that. Yeah, every every state actually has like their own somewhat bustling wine industry. Um, so uh, as like Lauren's like trying to come to terms with like Nicole's death, like she, uh, her and Carrie like get closer and. Like, because Justin, like, has to, like, go out of the picture and do, like, business stuff. Um, so it's, like, Lauren and Carrie being together. And, like, Lauren takes advantage of Carrie in, in grieving. But Carrie isn't, like, doing like doing anything to feel sorry for her. It's kind of like, like a blossoming. Because, like, like, the thing with Carrie is that, like, like she's had everything... She hasn't really thought about anything, and she's had like everything decided for her, and she hasn't really taken control for herself. Even though when you first meet her, like it seems like her and Justin's relationship is like okay, but actually uh, Justin's really controlling and an asshole. So like her relationship with Lauren, like uh, is like something that like she's decided for herself. So. It's really cute. It's really awesome. Uh, Carrie's played like uh, she's played by uh, Laura Spencer, who I guess is in Big Bang Theory, which made me really sad when I found that out. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it, 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 it did to me too when I looked it up on IMDb. I was like, oh, never mind. But it's, she does really well. It's really great, uh, and it's just a delight like to see them like like fall in love with each other. Uh, but also, uh, their, like, secret relationship, like, comes to, like, an explosive end at the end of the movie where everyone finds out. And so that's where, like, the bigotry and, like, Justin's actually an asshole comes out. Like, everyone's screaming at each other, and it's really amazing. It, it's got a happier ending than uh, Love Song, which is another, you know, woman-on-woman, woman, you know, spoilers, that's my number two. But... It does, it, like, Lauren is too, like, I feel like she's too accepting of her mother. Like, her mother's a piece of shit. Like, it's, like, really self-serving, like, oh, I'm a good mom, but, like, you shouldn't have been a lesbian. And she just, like, ignores it. She just, like, she, like, just accept it, accepts it and, like, still loves her mom. And it's, I don't know. I mean, you can do that, I guess, but I don't know. I feel like people like that deserve worse. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was uh, it was fun. All right, number three, Heartling from 2017. There's a lot of Heartling movies. <laughs> <laughs> you saw that too, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, let's get on to the number twos. My number two is Coco, the newest animated movie from uh, Pixar. Yes. I never remember like which one does which of these. They're at the point where they're blended at this point, but yeah. this was this was Pixar. Yeah. Uh, so this is a movie about a uh, Latin American family. No, it's just a Latin family. They're uh, they're from Mexico. Living in Mexico, there's a lot of Spanish in the movie. Um, it's about this little kid named Miguel. Uh, and he just wants to be a musician, but his entire family, since his, uh, great-grandmother, great-grandmother's father walked out on them, and he was a musician, they have just not allowed music at all to be in their family, and 
they're a shoemaking family. So they say you have to learn how to make shoes because that's how this family has lived for four generations now. So uh, this is set during the Day of the Dead. He wants to play the guitar. He has this. He has this idol in Ernesto de la Cruz, who is the most famous musician in Mexico. And in in the Day of the Gag celebration, the Gag come back and and they're celebrating by the living, uh, and they just the Gag chill out with the living in the in the real world. Uh, the living aren't aware that they're there, but they gotta take the food that the that the living has left for them, bring it back to the land of the Gag, which is this amazingly colorful place uh, with that's like hugely sprawling because it holds generations and generations of. Uh, of Mexican families in there, and it's, and through very various circumstances, Miguel is sent to the uh, the land of the dead, and he has to get back to the land of the living within one day, or else he will just be dead. But he has to get his family to accept his musical aspirations, um, because otherwise he he will not be able to to get there, get get back to being living. Because like there there is the exception of the the head of the family that says you have to not play music if you want to be living and it's it's kind of like a fucked up family dynamic. What am I missing about this? What I like about it? <laughs> <laughs> Why is it your number two, Corey? Uh, well, like halfway through that part, I realized I was rambling and then I I didn't know where I was going with the whole thing. Join the club. Yep. Um. No, I really, I really appreciated the, the depiction of Mexican culture in this. Like this, uh, or Kubo could have been this for Asian Americans if, like, they had cast any Asians in the movie, except for uh, what's his name, George K. Which you know he has his own problems now. But yeah, they have uh, a bevy of uh, Latin American or uh, the other word that's not that. Hispanic, yep, Latin American and Hispanic actors in this. Uh, like Gabriel Iglesias makes uh, an appearance. Cheech Marin makes a quick appearance. Edward James Olmos is in the movie. Uh, Benjamin Bratt, man, got to represent. Yeah, and uh, that the only geniality blood. The only non, um, the only non Latin American person is John Ratzenberger because he, of course, has to be in all these movies, which makes it a little more problematic given the recent. News about him, uh, but yeah, it's a gr- it's a great movie about like just appreciating music and being able to embrace what you love, uh, and being able to convince your family to accept that about you, uh, regardless of their feelings about it. And it was wonderful. It was a very good movie. And for anyone out there who's listening, it is not ripping off the Guillermo del Toro produced Book of the Dead or your Book of Life, sorry, which is also a computer animated film that takes place during Dio de los Muertos. Um, the the themes and the stories are very different. It's like saying movie A has a cookout and movie B also has people barbecuing because they're Americans and oh we everybody's making Fourth of July movies because they're unoriginal. That's not true. And barbecues are different, Chris. No, they're the same. No, they're not. Whatever. Whatever. Semantics. It's not. It's not a ripoff of Book of Life, and they can both exist. They are both good. I think Coco is much, much, much better. Uh, but they're both good. They can both exist. Stop boycotting Coco. 
Why would people boycott Coco? Because 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 of the whole Book of Life thing. Like people for real were like, oh, you're just ripping off Book of Life because the and Coco is only co-directed by a Hispanic uh, man. The the main director is the same white dude who's made all of Pixar's best movies. Um, whereas Book of Life was fully created by Hispanic uh, creators. Ripping off book of like people just got really ridiculous with it. Like the uh, Kaiba and uh, Lion King, right? Uh, that, oh yeah, yeah. That'd be a better analogy. Yeah. If you're gonna like complain about something being a copy of something else, then uh, you're gonna not be watching a lot of movies ever. Watching. <laughs> because yeah, eventually you get to like so deep down into what these stories are about, then everything is a copy of something else. You better not listen. Like either don't have fun, dude. Yeah, just don't watch movies. <laughs> they're all no, I, the same. I, I, they, they, they're, they're all the hero's journey in the end, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I, uh, I loved I loved Coco too. It's it, it's in my top five Pixar. Um, yeah. it, that was a very wonderful, fulfilling, uplifting experience walking out of that theater. And uh, that song, "Remember Me." It was bugging me during the movie, but my brain, it, the, the melody of that Remember Me song is just like Stand By Me. <laughs> or, or not Stand By Me, Lean On Me. That's not the same yeah. song. No, it's not. They're, they're very different. <laughs> they're, they're very different, but it's the same I... melody. Remember me when I'm gone, it's Lean On Me when you're not strong. Like it's, it's got the same kind of vocal melody. So it was like driving me bonkers throughout the whole thing. <laughs> But it's a good song in in both cases. Yeah. So oh, a cool thing about the soundtrack is that they have uh, Spanish language versions of every song that they play. Nice. Yeah. Anyway, number two, Coco. Chris, what's your number two? Oh, my number two. I, I have a feeling that this will come up again, and I'm embarrassed that I will be the first person talking about it. But it is the smash success of the year, Get Out, directed and written by Jordan Peele. You've um, to this this match, Chris. Yeah. You're the first one to speak of it. <laughs> <laughs> but no, Get Out. Um, it's it's easily the best horror movie of the year. Um, one of the best debuts ever. Uh, what Jordan Peele did out the gate is, is unheard of, um, considering that you know he he hasn't been toiling away making short films for years. He just had a comedy show that was really good and likes horror movies and Blumhouse gave Come him carpet. Sketch comedy, I mean, there was he put a lot of, like, if you watch his show yeah, There's very, a lot of horror in there. Yeah, he tried to make them very cinematic, I feel. The best ones are very cinematic. Yeah. I, I, I really like that show. That show, uh, Key and Peel, is probably, it's the best sketch comedy in at least 20 years. Very good. Yeah. One few sketch comics I've ever watched uh, on a regular basis, certainly. I I can't say anything for certain because I just don't watch enough comedy. Because I like sad things, Chris. <laughs> I like well, by my art. <laughs> Get Out is, is also sad. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think at this point everyone has heard about Get Out. Like, this is... This is the movie that nobody could escape from. And and the fact that it came out in February and, and, and was able to maintain that momentum is, is such a strong indicator of what Jordan Peele was able to do. Um, he, he, he really touched through on something in society that, that could impact every single person in 
any myriad of ways. The one one thing about the movie that that bugged me is the way that it was received by the media is, oh, horror movies are smart and about things now. We're on a new wave of horror. Fuck you. Mm. <laughs> so fucking hard that you die a million times. Horror movies have always been about things. That's why I love them, because it is the one genre that's always about something else. And, and for, and, and people did it with, with it as well. When it came out in September, they're like, Oh, it's, it's not a horror movie. It's a psychological, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. It's a horror movie <laughs> and it can be about things and it can be good. Surprise, sir, fucking surprise. Horror movies can actually be good. Sorry. I've been building that up for almost exactly a year. Uh, because it always it just bugs me. Anyway, uh, the the lead actor Daniel Kaluuya, Kaluuya, he I only ever saw him in Cesario, and he had a very minor uh, supporting role in Cesario. Uh, Sicario. Sicario. Okay, I've never heard anyone else say it, <laughs> and I don't remember how it was pronounced in the movie if they ever said it. Um, but <laughs> but so so coming into this movie, he's also in Black Bear. He's, he's in also in Black you're uh, Black- he he's in Black Mirror. He's in an episode of Doctor Who too. Oh, see, I yeah, I I haven't I don't remember him from Doctor Who. If if he was in the Peter Capaldi years, I haven't watched that at all. No, he was one of the he was in one of the specials, the David Tennant specials. Uh, okay, you know that year of specials. <laughs> um, so I didn't know what to expect from him going in, um, and he he was he's able to command such a range of emotion throughout the entire picture. So, so you, you, every time you look at his face, you can see his comfort or his discomfort, his trust or his suspicion. Um, just his acting alone sells this movie. Everybody else could have been the worst actors of all time. In fact, um, one of them I don't like at all. That is the dirty dude, Caleb Landry Jones, who just looks <laughs> like he needs to take a bath. Um, but, but the whole movie rests on Daniel Kaluuya, and the way that it unfolds its story, it, it continues to surprise. It, it's, it's, it's something that's really unique in that you're not able to pick up on the direction of the film as it's slowly doling out its various elements until you get to the very end and it just all collides together. And it's one of the most holy shit stand back and take notice moments in, in, many years for movies uh when when you realize what is happening you're just like holy fucking shit and then you you look at society and you look you know at yourself and like oh my god like i've acted like that i know people that act like that who out there is out there trying to do you know would love to do what happens in this movie like who are the crazy people that that look at this movie and say that's a good fucking idea oh no you know you know they're out there you know that those people exist. If they say they would have voted for Obama three times, that's that's the whistle. That's that's the whistle. Allison Allison Williams has had several people walk up to her and be like, So your character, she's not she's not actually evil, is she? She's like she yeah. was mind controlled too, right? No, no. bitch is evil. <laughs> Fucking white she's people. Eating a half of a fruit loop and drinking milk out of a straw. She's evil. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's it's got a terrific supporting cast. Uh, Catherine Keener is very insidious. Um, Bradley Whitford, he's 
Bradley Whitford. Like he's the same fucking dude in every movie he's ever been in. Uh, Lakeith Stanfield, who yes, uh, he's exactly like he in West Wing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just I don't I don't want to talk about the plot because everybody knows the plot. You know, everybody. If you haven't seen the movie, go see the movie. It's this is a movie that will last for many many years, not just in a a genre context or a cult context. This is the first time in my lifetime that I've seen a horror movie that that is going to be a monument moving forward, like Rosemary's Baby, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Nightmare on Elm Street, all these landmarks of the genre that have that mainstream appeal that when people, you know, act all snobbish because horror, horror movies are terrible, they'll be like, oh, I don't watch that horror shit. But one that I do like is called Get Out. It's one of those movies. It's going to be... It's going to be out there in the consciousness for many, many years to come. And Jordan Peele needs to make all the movies with Blumhouse. Forget going to the big studios. Blumhouse has a has a has a rule where they only give a budget of like one or two million dollars. They made an exception and gave Jordan Peele like three or four million. Yeah, yeah it got like five. We could be at least four point five, but I've heard five yeah. a lot. So, so, so that was that was a little more money than Blumhouse likes to put out for their movies. But they always they always aim for low budget and they always aim for the quality. And so that's why Blumhouse continues to exist, because every movie, one of their movies, they come out, they earn at least 20 million on opening weekend. This movie which is, is listed as making two hundred and fifty five million dollars. Like, holy fucking shit, <laughs> like off of a five million dollar budget. Yeah, this um, is the and, highest and, grossing movie for a first time black director. Yeah. So, so, so I don't want Jordan Peele to have more money because this doesn't look like a cheap five million dollar low budget film. It looks great um, because of the budgetary limitations. Uh, Jordan Peele had to be inventive with his visuals, how he wants to display the sunken place, um, how he wants to to build the climax, and because he he had restrictions, he was able to be better because of it. That's what I want. It won't happen. He'll be directing Star Wars in two years, oh, which will no. be no, not not really. That's an allegory, but yeah. it's basically what's going to happen. If you he haven't was, seen Get Out, get out and see it. He was attached to Akira for a long time. Yeah, I'd see that. Yeah, um, am I, yeah, I am unmuted here. Uh, I just wanted to say, like, one of the magical things about this movie is like. Uh, actually, Allison Janney's performance in which uh, she, like, the first time you watch it, not knowing anything, it has a completely different context to, uh, especially in the beginning, uh, until you find out about her later on in the film and her true intentions. Like, you read them completely differently the second time you come around this movie, uh, which I think is uh, fantastic. It's like... I want to say uh, the complete opposite reaction you have with the female character from, uh, well, Marla from the club, where you, at first you're like, she is such the evil, apathetic, disappointing person, and then you find out more, uh, after you find out more about her, like, the rest, uh, she becomes incredibly sympathetic. It's the opposite in this one. <laughs> Um, so yeah, and I, I really like, uh, uh, I, I'm really sad that I couldn't really find a good way to get this onto my top five, but, uh, it's definitely, uh, that number six. That's it. That's all I got. Fucking triumph. Get out. Number two. 
Uh, Camellia, what's your number two? All right, so I spoiled it before. Number two's love song, which is, as you were talking about before with, like, Coco and uh, Little Mermaid, you know, stories that are the same. <laughs> um, love song's kind of like the same thing as, like, Heartland, almost. So love song uh, is it's directed by uh, a Korean-American woman, So Young Kim, uh, and co-written by her and some dude. Um, and it's starring Riley Keough and Jenna Malone. And it's about uh, Riley's character, uh, Sarah, is uh, her husband is estranged. Like, he, like, um, uh, he, like, works, like, for his job, he has to, like, travel, and so he's gone all the time. Also, it seems like, I don't know, like, there's maybe, like, no love there anymore or something, um, or, like, that he doesn't really care. So, uh, Riley's, like, doesn't really get into the, the circumstances of why, but she did go to college, but, like, now she's just, like, a stay-at-home mom kind of thing, uh, and so since, you know, her husband's not there and she has nothing to do, and it's just her and her daughter, who's three. Um, she goes on a road trip with her old college friend, or no, I think they're childhood friends actually. I don't remember. <laughs> uh, but they're friends for a long time, and Mindy, who's Jenna Malone, they go on a road trip. Uh, and like the plotting of the movie is pretty sparse. It's a it's a lot of uh, like body language is where like most of like the interaction is some of the some of the cinematography is a little weird in that it's like voyeuristic like the cam the camera itself is but the content isn't if that makes sense like the camera is like in the closet for this like one scene where she's getting clothes out of a dresser for her daughter the camera is like in the closet and you can like tell it's in the closet it's really weird uh there's a lot of scenes like that um but like for the for the body language, it's um like in Heartland, it's like Riley and Mindy, like Sarah and Mindy, like slowly uh, coming on to each other, and then but then they uh, they sleep with each other, and then it gets awkward, and uh, Sarah is kind of an asshole, like she's really confused with her life and where she's at, and you know like coming to terms with like liking other girls, uh, other women. So she uh, uh, projects her insecurities onto Mindy, being like, oh, you know, you drink all the time, and you're, you know, wild, so I thought you'd just do these things, which is <laughs> really fucked up. Uh, so they, uh, they like, cut the road trip short and then, like, go their separate ways. And then the second half of the movie is three years later, where Mindy is getting married and Sarah goes to the wedding and it's really sad because it's it's like cuz it's Sarah going there and like realizing like what could have been and like what she lost by like pushing Mindy away at that one time but they do uh, at the end of the movie they do sh- share some close moments together that are really that are really awesome they ch- like like try to like um like not rekindling the fire but rekindling the fire so to speak but they can't because it's literally like the day of the wedding but like it so it's sad in that 
you know, they're not going to be together, and they're like both like crying at the like while the wedding's going on. But like, of course, to everyone else, it's like, oh, because they're getting married. Actually, no, it's because they can't be together. But I was hoping the message of the movie would be like, oh, you know, you always have a choice. You know, you can just say, you know, fuck it. Like, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be painful. But no, they. I don't. I don't really know what the point of the movie is. But you know, uh, yeah, it's sad. But also the parts that aren't sad are really, really fun and cute. And Jenna yeah, well, Malone's awesome. What was this called again? Love Song. It was co-written by uh, her husband. Who's? Oh, Bradley. That's yeah, her so husband. Okay. Okay. I didn't know. Married. Okay. That's what Wikipedia tells me. So it better be right. Their kids are in the movie too. Yeah. They're uh, they're wonderful. They're great. I don't know. I just I really like the movie. It's, I wanted. A, what a happy ending. <laughs> so this sounds like it's up, uh, sounds interesting to me. <laughs> yeah, I don't think <laughs> Because it's sad. <laughs> I don't think anything happy yes. is going to come out of that ending. <laughs> oh, boy. All right, so number two, love song. Corey, what's your number two? Uh, my number two is I, Tanya. Uh, anybody else see this yet? No. Chris Hell yeah. I saw it. It's, it's, it's my number... What did I say in my brief? Number eight. Yes, uh, in your your elongated list of movies. Yep. Uh, your list of 47 <laughs> movies. That's right. This movie is fantastic. Um, earlier I mentioned Scorsese uh, uh, being like pinnacle, I guess, of cinematic eye. And in a lot of ways, uh, this movie feels like Scorsese and... Uh, 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 it reminded me of a lot of Wolf of Wall Street uh, and his approach to Wolf of Wall Street and how he was, um, uh, I should say this is not directed by Martin Scorsese, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but that... Uh, you, you could really fool people, too. That's that's the thing. Yeah. Also, it feels very Coen Brothers in a, uh, a lot of ways uh, as well, in that it's it takes this celebrity... Uh, larger than life kind of figure with some very disturbing and damaging um, sets of behaviors that she goes through uh, uh, that she's part of and the people in her life that are just not uh, there to create a healthy environment uh, and just the toll that it takes on and it does it through uh what was probably one of the biggest sporting incidences in history and one that i've uh that i lived through seeing you know you know how like people say like i remember the oj incident this is uh, this is probably the uh next uh, biggest sporting celebrity incidents uh other than oj I mean, I, easily, I would uh, easily, I would say. So, uh, uh, the production is incredible. I liked how um, they, I mean, just shot the. Uh, it feels so. We're watching the Olympics right now. I'm watching people uh, do these amazing things on blades on top of ice, which and watching that happen is like crazy. And the way that they shoot it in here is. Uh, very different and uh, even more cinematic and engaging. I love the production values of it, of this movie because it's so just 90s. <laughs> you said 90s. Um, 
that that layer of brown aesthetic over everything. Um, and it's just a it's a incredibly like uh fascinating and disturbing look at this woman and what she went through and may have gone through in the height of her sports history. Like, I don't think uh, figure skating has been uh, ever as popular at that uh, since that time. Probably never will be. We're talking uh, about right now. Right now. Well, even right now, it's not, not as uh, popular as it was back then. I mean, you think about it, yeah, Tanya Harding, Michelle Kwan, yeah, I mean, there was... Uh, real celebrities. I mean, uh, like don't we just Adam I- Rapon, Corey. <laughs> Johnny Weir's hair is also a celebrity. Yuri <laughs> uh, on Ice made made figure skating amazing. <laughs> uh, they were born to make history. As popular as it's been since the Tanya Harding days. So, anyways, I just you know there is a moment where she's just like putting on her makeup uh, and. Uh, to cover up the bruises and it's just like uh nor it's been so normalized for her which is so scary to think about like where people uh where this person has gone to uh in her in her psyche and i don't know if you ever like you don't justify her but it's incredible to see the context and the the events that happen around her that create such a toxic environment uh, to create that explodes so gloriously, I guess you would say, um, that we know of. So, um, yeah, I thought, yeah, I, I think it's the best Cohen's film since not, not made by a Cohen. <laughs> it's, it's fantastic. Go see it. It's, it's entertaining and it's also just like, disturbing and it brings up a lot of questions about you know what we do with others uh and how much we affect and how much we normalize uh negative behaviors for i guess you would say uh so celebrity gratification and social standing yeah i tanya fantastic fantastic it is it's I walked out of the theater and I was just on fire. I was like, "Oh my god!" I, my, my exact lines, I think, was, "It's Goodfellas starring the cast of Fargo." Like these are some fucking buffoons um, in this movie. The, the only thing, the only thing that I wished would have been better is the music cues because every song that comes up, because it's very much that Martin Scorsese, Wolf of Wall Street, Goodfellas use of pop music. Did I have the wrong every, yeah, Probably. I don't, I don't remember, but like every single music cue, it's the same fucking music cue you've heard 18 million times in every other biopic film that has that Martin Scorsese influence. Like, you can count them down. Creedence Clearwater, there it is. You know, that's the only thing that bugged me was the, the, the choice of music was not unique. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, um, especially, like, you... Soundtracks have become popular again because of things like Guardians of the Galaxy, Baby Driver, and, uh, yeah, yeah, we talked Marvel- about it Comic Blonde, like, when you start picking the, you know, Billboard's top ten, you know, from uh, that that week in <laughs> in history, and it's kind of boring. But, I, I mean, I like 90s music so I was fine with it uh, whatever 
Yeah. I, I mean, well, I like eighty music too. Don't get me wrong, but <laughs> it's just um, I I totally can see your point. <laughs> yeah, Margot Robbie is my choice for to to win Best Actress. I she she pulled off something amazing in this movie, um, which I think yeah, is actually I, kind of I, funny because everybody else everybody else in this movie actually looks pretty similar to the real life person. Except for Margot Robbie, she looks nothing like Tanya Harding. They would have gotten Amy Adams if they wanted to go that route. Um, but for being the one person that wasn't built to, to mirror the real life counterpart, she just she walked away with it. They digs. I read they dig some uh, extra interviews with like Tanya Harding and a lot of the other people involved in that incident and like the interviews throughout the movie are the actors doing those interviews that they did with the real people yeah i i tried googling to find the interview with her quote-unquote bodyguard for where the the interviewer is like so you claim to be a interoperative agent for the cia i am no you're not yes i am i tried finding the real interview for that and i couldn't do it um <laughs> Because that was that was I was just like, holy shit, are you kidding me? Like the dude is on TV. Like, nope, that's that's incorrect. But I I checked, I I verified you went to high school and you've lived in your parents' basement ever since. Uh, incorrect. I I I was in Russia for a few years doing counter espionage. No, you weren't. Yes, I was. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Margot Robbie has to get past Sally Hawkins, Francis McDormand, Saoirse Ronan, Meryl Streep. I think she she does it. I would I agree. I, I I think it's one of two of the best uh, female performances. The other one's in uh, Phantom Thread, so. And she's not nominated, I don't think. So. No, she is not. Is that the lead or the supporting? Uh, I don't know actually. I honestly I haven't looked at. Uh, I don't really pay attention to award shows. Hmm. So That's a good I choice. can't. But um. Uh, Leslie Manville is nominated for best supporting. Oh, is she. She was Cyril Woodcock. Okay. Well, she's a shoe-in. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, number two, I, Tanya. Chris, bring us home. Number one. We don't have another user list? Oh, right. We have another user list. Thank you for <laughs> reminding me. <laughs> All right. Get organized, Corey. I am very unorganized. So, let's see. The other user list we got is from Izanga, number five. Wait. Honorable mentions, Spider-Man Homecoming and Atomic Blonde. Then number five, Wonder Woman. Number four, Lady Bird. Number three, Thor Ragnarok. Number two, Coco. And number one, Gigaox. He also mentioned King Figures, and then we argued about whether King Figures is a 2016 or a 2017 movie. <laughs> it's an every year movie. Let's take one last break, and then we'll get into our best movies of 2017. So Chris, number one, what you got? Oh God, I'm, uh, I'm so nervous. I'm so nervous. <sighs> okay, my number one is Twin Peaks: The Return. I am not here to argue. <laughs> I am oh not here to argue. God. 
I'm not going <laughs> to argue on whether it is a movie or whether it is a TV show. That argument is being had elsewhere and has been being had for like three months straight. I have zero interest in making that distinction. Absolutely zero interest. What I do know is that Twin Peaks The Return is literally the greatest cinematic art creation in history. <laughs> um, there is literally not a single thing in this world that is better than Twin Peaks The Return. And that's the bottom dollar. So, holy shit. Um <laughs> In, in, in my, my fantastic year of where I watched 284 things, I watched the entirety of the original Twin Peaks and Twin Peaks The Return three times, and the film oh Firewalk with four times. Uh, and I'm constantly fighting the itch to just start watching it again. Twin Peaks The Return, for anyone who's not familiar, uh, the original Twin Peaks television series aired in 1990 to 1991. It's created by David Lynch and Mark Frost. The the original series is the landmark television series. Nothing that you love would exist if it wasn't for Twin Peaks. It was the first film to try to or the first TV series to do serialized storytelling in a primetime environment. Um beforehand all you had was sitcoms, procedurals and soap operas. So Twin Peaks said, "Well, I'm going to take the soap opera format make fun of soap operas a little bit, and tell an ongoing mystery. David Lynch never intended for the central mystery of who killed Laura Palmer to be solved. But in 1990, the world wasn't ready for it, and um, ABC pressured David Lynch and Mark Frost to, to solve that, that mystery. So in the second season, just like six episodes in, they solved it. They said, okay, this is the person who, who killed Laura Palmer. And then at the same, in the same breath, they made it really weird. Um, Corey with a K is still in the middle of trying to watch the original Twin Peaks. I still need um, to finish it too. Yep. And w when it makes that turn, like things just get really weird. Sadly, the quality of a bunch of the episodes that follow that are, are not, is not there. Um, the last like nope. five episodes, the last five episodes really pick back up and the final episode of the original series is was I should say was in my opinion the best single episode of television. The the finale of the original Twin Peaks is so fucking crazy that nobody is expecting it. Even if you watch it today and you've heard people talk about it, you're you're not going to expect how fucking crazy it is. And and it, and it ended on a cliffhanger. The series was canceled, so the world lived without knowing anything about the the resolutions to the, that finale for 25 years um in 1992 david lynch went back and he made the a feature film called firewalk with me and that is a it's a prequel so david lynch over the creation of twin peaks fell in love with laura palmer um a lot of people started to misunderstand the purpose of Laura Palmer because because the original series was made just like a normal TV show where all kinds of different writers would come in all kinds of different directors and they would make their own episodes with you know some kind of oversight from Lynch and Frost and 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 so Laura Palmer over the course of the series as everybody was doing their own thing with it became the dead girl that the series revolved around but Laura Palmer was always so much more than just a dead girl. She is the 
the pinnacle of the, 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 the American teenage girl and all of her complexities. Um, she, she, she had 18 million different sides to her, different facets. And so with Firewalk With Me, Lynch went back and told the story of her last seven days before she died. The film was critically and commercially reviled in 1992. And only in recent years has it started getting the, the critical reevaluation that it deserves. When I first watched it, I was like, no, that's really good. Um, it's not like the TV show. I don't know how I feel about it. Um, I've watched that movie like seven times eight times in just the last six years. Cause I, I didn't come to twin peaks until about six or seven years ago. And it, it probably is David Lynch's best film. Um, it's, it's and Cheryl Lee does the greatest female performance in history in that film. So we, we, we were left with nothing. David Lynch had a three movie trilogy plan to finish the story of twin peaks. And we got, we got shit. Cue to cut to 25 years later, and Showtime decided to throw a bunch of money at David Lynch, a man who has not made any uh, a movie in over a decade. They decided to throw a whole bunch of money and say, "Do whatever you want." So what he did was he he created the actual definition of a magnum opus. This is his life's work, and Twin Peaks as a whole is everything you need to know about David Lynch's philosophies. Um, who he is as a person and how he views the world. Uh, the return is literally about everything. I don't want to talk about the basic plot of, of the return because if you haven't seen the original series, it knowing what happened, um, what the basic idea of, of the return is would spoil the end of the original series. And I never want to do that because that finale is amazing. So I'm going to be really abstract, which is perfectly in tune with the series. It literally talks about everything. It's about it's about art. It's about, you know, your personal convictions. It's about small time life. It's about crimes. It's about love. It's about literally everything. And what he does in it is he he's pulling from his entire body of work and and pouring it into this 18 hour menagerie of ideas um like so david lynch is a, a classically trained painter that's what he's done he's a painter and a visual artist he kind of just fell into movies as a new way to to create visual art so if you i have a, a i have one of his uh art books so it's just it's just pictures of his actual art exhibits that he displays in galleries in france and he actually took like these art pieces that he made 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago and, and turns them into a scene. And every scene is a independent piece of art. It, it, every, every scene has its own purpose, has its own agency, and it, it may or may not connect well with the surrounding scenes, but that doesn't matter because what Lynch is, is a master of tone. Um, life is fucked up. Life like you could live your life and one moment something is really funny happening sometime and the next moment you're angry the next moment you're sad all of these things can happen especially when you are interacting with the world as a whole so the the fact that we we watch movies and have an expectation for tone you know like oh it was very uneven in its tone or all these other movies that i've been talking about are able to to properly interlink varying tones to a great effect. Nobody does that better than David Lynch. You you are watching one moment a scene where a broken family is sitting around a diner discussing the the legal 
and emotional problems of their daughter. And then the next moment, a bullet rings through. Everybody's freaking out. And you find that, oh, some redneck keeps his gun loaded in the fucking car. And his son, who is just as much of a redneck garbage personality, fires the gun because he thinks it's cool. And he stands there, the child, this six-year-old, obstinately sits there and stares at a police officer like, what the fuck are you going to do to me? That right there is is about something. The, 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 the gun culture, the way that rural America behaves. And then while all that's happening, someone is just honking their horn for like 10 minutes straight. And you go over and it's a lady screaming about she's being late for dinner. And there's a girl in the passenger seat who looks like a fucking zombie with green slime pouring out of her mouth as she rises up from a reclined chair and just all these images and ideas are blasted into your face. Um, and it's it's the most jarring experience that is also the most rewarding experience. So when I watched it a third time when it came out on Blu-ray, having sat through all 18 hours previously, so when it was airing, I would watch, you know, the episode that aired. The next week, I would rewatch last week's episode and then the current episode and so on and so forth to the end. Having sat through the whole 18 hours, absorbed it into me and rewatching it, the, 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 the thing really comes alive because as you're watching it for the very first time, you do not know what to expect. It's aggressive. It's, it attacks you. And David Lynch spends the first four hours, the first four parts of this thing, trying to train you on how to watch the series because if you don't if you don't learn how he wants you to watch it nothing is going to click for you it will be you know a very large portion of the people who watched it were very pissed off that we spent 5 minutes watching a super attractive french lady put on her heels and leave a room it's one of the funniest scenes of the year but people were just like, oh, my God, it's taking so long. And David Lynch feeds off of that. One of the things that's in all of his films is, is this lingering. He'll just let the camera sit there and, and, and let the scene breathe. And, and it, it'll stretch beyond what you think is acceptable in, in cinema. Because cinema has, over the, the last hundred plus years, built a unwritten list of rules and David Lynch is here to break every single one of those rules to do something different. Um, you cannot predict where it goes next. You can try and you will be laughed at um, because I've never, ever encountered something that is this unpredictable that you think you see where it's going. And then you're just like, holy shit, what the fuck? And the final the final three hours, the final three parts are the greatest things um, ever made. <laughs> Part, part 16 gives the audience their their catharsis. Part 17 wraps up the storyline. And part 18 keeps mystery alive. Because he, he understands that once you solve a mystery, there's no more, there's no more, nothing else to love. Because people are constantly consuming things. I, I, you know, watch one movie after the other. Camelia, we had this discussion online at one point. You're, you know, how can you rewatch things? There's so many new things yeah. to go. No, you, you should be rewatching things because you don't understand it's art. So you, you, you watch it once and you watch it again and you see new things. That's, and, and for David Lynch's films, they, it requires it. The more you watch a David Lynch film, 
the more you understand what he's doing and the more you adjust to his tone. He is completely in control of the ship and it's up to you to adjust yourself to fit into to fit into his boat. And he doesn't give a shit about you or your accessibility or anything. He he pours his creativity and his ideas and he forms this narrative and everything is there. People have pestered David Lynch ever since the final uh, final part aired. You know, can you explain this? And he just looks at you and says, no. You know, what? you read a book and you find and, – and, and all these questions are raised. This is a quote that he's said a few times. You, all these questions are raised and you want to talk to the author about what he meant or what the answer to these questions are. And then you realize that the book was written 100 years ago and that person is dead. You You have only yourself to rely on. And it's the way that he crafts the abstract – tissue between ideas and scenes because it is abstract because it is removed from a general context every single person who who watches it is going to come away with something different because there is no defined reality there is no ob- objective reality in the works of david lynch and twin peaks the return is that to the next level you, you can you you're watching a story unfold and you think that you understand what's happening, but someone else could think of something different because you don't watch a person walk into a bar and there's exposition. You watch a person walk into the bar and you're seeing the climax of that scene. Um, you're not seeing the buildup. You're just seeing the meat of it. And, and that is so intellectually stimulating. The return is not accessible. I, I am fully aware of that, and I don't care because who? Why, why should everything be accessible? Why should everything be dumbed down to a four quadrant? Let's appeal to all, as many Americans as we can. He he, he says no. I, I have this idea, and I'm going to fucking say it. Um, and and I love all of it so much. When the the, the final part aired, you you don't get you don't get any closure, but you do. So as you rewatch it over and over again, as you analyze it, you realize that this that it ends. There is a very clear, very definitive end. It's a emotional and thematic conclusion. It's not a narrative conclusion. It's emotional and thematic. But because the narrative doesn't tie off, say he wants to make more later. Cool. He's he's able to do that. But if he never does, everything that he put into the return is here. You just have to dig for it. You have to do the work. And it's so freeing to, to, to have something that is that intellectually stimulating, that, that can mean so much to you and means something so completely different uh, to anyone else. You can have discussions endlessly. And that's why... That's why Twin Peaks, the original series, that's why it lasted. That's why it's a cult favorite. That's why it's a cult classic and why The Return was able to exist 25 years later. Because it was canceled, because we were not able to get closure. And so you spend your time uh, going over those 30 episodes trying to figure something out, trying to dig and find the meaning. And sometimes you can't because it was a lot of different people creating that original show but that's what that's why it lived the return is the same way except it was david lynch's in in complete and total vision it was in his control so it ends in a way that he wants and and in a way that he understands that you can you can come to your own conclusions because of what he's provided 
I, I could go on forever and ever because I, I, I really do love this this thing that he created more than anything else that I've ever experienced. Um, it is an absolute crime that Kyle MacLachlan did not win the Golden Globe. He lost it to Ewan McGregor, and people can say Ewan McGregor played two different roles in Fargo, so he deserved it. Bitch, Kyle MacLachlan played six different roles by my last count, and he is the MVP of all time. Um, one of my favorite cinematic characters of all time. My favorite uh, mayor. <laughs> your favorite mayor. Um, Special Agent Dale Cooper. Um, they, the return was able to introduce a, a new character that has replaced him kind of in my heart, and that is Dougie Jones, not to be confused with the senator in Alabama or the actor behind the fish skin. <laughs> um, Dougie Jones is my hero. I absolutely love Dougie. And if you will give me one moment, I'm trying to find a picture that I have saved because I think it exemplifies everything that I love about the return in a way that I could never personally speak. Um, this is, this is from an IMDB user rating, um, review attached to part eight. Part eight is the greatest TV episode thing ever because it spends 20-ish minutes showing you abstract images of, of light and image that is very much akin to Stan Brackage. I don't know if anyone here is familiar with Stan Brackage. He's an avant-garde filmmaker from yeah. the 60s, 70s, and 80s. His he, big uh, he also, there's, uh, you can get most of his works in a Criterion collection. Yep, that Criterion set is amazing, by the way. I absolutely adore it. Everybody should see it. Um, one of the things that he does a lot, and you could see this in that Criterion set, is he would take a strip of film, he would develop the negatives with no images on it, and then he would paint on each frame. And it, it's all abstract paint. So, you know, like the kind of painting that people make fun of where you just like throw a brush against the wall and it makes a splash and you just keep going and you create this it just looks like a puddle of shit but there's an image in there that evokes emotional response even though you don't know what it is specifically you're looking at he would do that on every single frame and you know for anyone that knows anything um, when you're watching film, it's 24 frames per second. So he would do 24 different abstract art paintings that he would paint with actual paint and create a four-minute short film that those abstract paintings flash before your eyes in such quick succession that it's it's disorienting. That is exactly what uh, David Lynch does in Part 8. A lot of people kept saying, oh, no, it's 2001, A Space Odyssey. Yeah, okay, sure. The idea is it, but the execution is totally Stan Brackage. And, and, and it, it, that episode deals with the um, Trinity test, the atomic test site in 1945 before America nuked the shit out of Japan. And it stands as a, a statement on how David Lynch feels about not just the atomic bomb, but America post the atomic bomb. Um, he's very much interested in the facade. You know, the 1950s and 60s was when America was great again. He's like, nah, the 50s and the 60s were fucking garbage, bro. You just need to open your eyes and, you know, clean that shit off. That, that's something that he, he deals with over and over again in all of his films, the, the, the duality 
the Twin Peaks. That's where the t- name really comes from, this duality. And, and, and it goes on for like 20 minutes of this abstract imagery. And then you get really stuttering cinematography. It's, it's incredible. You have to see it. You could even pop it in without watching any Twin Peaks and just gaze at it. It's quiet for the whole second 45 uh, the the second 45 minutes of it. The first 15 minutes is the only part with really any dialogue. Anyway, so this IMDb user review for part eight, it was a one star out of 10 review. And the fact that it is so negative is is why it's so beautiful. I get that the director needs to show his ideas and has a unique way to develop and show me a story, but this should be television and not some art cinema underground film. I prefer a clean, classic storytelling, something that anyone can watch and have a good time. And if the director is smart enough, he can hide Easter eggs and hidden messages to stuff. I prefer to watch over and over a scene and try to catch the other meaning if I feel that there is one. That... that, I know, right? That used to be Twin Peaks. And the only reason I'm still watching this is because of that title. It is unfair and unethical to use the name of a good TV show for for making your weird, quote unquote, what the director wanted to say with this scene, end quote, kind of crap be seen by millions. You think you are that good? Tell people from the start. I will make a weird art movie that only I can understand, and all of you will just stay there and wonder if they got it right and see who will watch it. Those two to 3,000 people will be your audience and live with it. The others would like to be entertained, me included. you damn fucking straight. He made an 18-hour underground art film, and it's incredible because of that. It talks about nostalgia. It talks. He, he actively plays with your expectations for a revival series. He actively and aggressively denies you your nostalgia for a purpose. And then he'll be like, no, no, here's a piece of nostalgia because this is true. David Lynch is a a big uh, proponent for transcendental meditation and finding the truth in things. And that's what he does. Every part has its own theme. You can watch the episodes out of order on, on rewatch, of course. You should watch it the first time straight through. But on rewatches, you can just pop in any any piece that you want because it's nonlinear. You don't know when these different events are happening. You, there, there's at least one very clear instance where, oh, no, no, this happened seven episodes ago. Why is it being shown now? Because now it has a thematic cohesion to the other events that are being portrayed in this particular part. And the fact that it's nonlinear, the fact that all the pieces are scattered left and right, that you're just watching glimpses from all these various storylines cohese into to something bigger than us, bigger than Lynch, bigger than, than anything. It was a miracle to watch week to week over the summer. It was a miracle to rewatch in over the course of one week when the Blu-rays came out. And I will watch it over and over again. You cannot tell me that anything is better than The Return because I won't believe you because this is my truth and I can analyze it and dig in as much as I want and get endless, endless hours of entertainment and enjoyment. Chris, you said, you said I got all scoff here like 10 minutes ago. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, like, I could do an entire podcast where you just walk through the return because you can do that because there's 
each each part is so dense. Even when you're watching a French lady put on high heels for five minutes and Miguel Ferrer and David Lynch stare at each other for another five minutes while Miguel Ferrer just has this very disappointed look on his face. Uh, you can watch that, but it still feels dense. Um, I, I had no idea how how much stuff happened in it until I started rewatching it. Every part is just like, holy shit, I can't believe all this was just this episode and we're on part five. What the fuck? I, I wish that I could do that. I wish that 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 I could go into that level of detail, but I will not and cannot here. I just please watch all of Twin Peaks, even if you dislike portions of the original series. If you dislike Firewalk with me, watch it a couple more times because that's unacceptable. And then you get to the return and there's something different. It's not the same beast. It's not what you expect. It's not what you think you want. It's something better. And Corey Proft can laugh at me all he wants. Holy fucking shit, Twin Peaks. I'm done. I'm sorry. Are you sure? I'm so sorry. <laughs> You're good. Uh, all right, number one, Twin Peaks, The Return. Camilla, what's your number one? I'm tired now. Uh, <laughs> I think Chris would be more tired. <laughs> I'm just thirsty. <laughs> uh, I, 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 just bought, I just bought Twin Peaks, so the... So there you go, Chris. Always remember that David Lynch reserved an entire scene in this 18-hour opus for the sole purpose of telling the world that he supports trans rights. Like that's it. That that scene exists for no other reason than for David Lynch to say he supports trans rights and always has. And that's that's the kind of art it's created. It's scenes with ideas that are that are there. He creates an overall story from those ideas. But the narrative isn't what drives it. The ideas drive it. Sorry, I started talking about it again, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, I'm saying uh, it's the review that never ends. <laughs> Twin Peaks never ends, buddy. If you've seen it and you know the final, the, how it ends, it never ends. It never ends. It will live forever. I'm going to put ah. a moratorium on Twin Peaks right now. <laughs> you can't. Chris, you I, can I think start ta- next podcast. Oh, I think I've talked about Twin Peaks on every podcast since the the thing started airing in May. Like I just have to keep just keep talking about it every time. Amelia. Oh God. What you got? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I need to take a nap. Um. Uh. All right. So my number one is uh, Princess Sid to uh, complete my trilogy of women. On women romance. It's uh, directed by and written by Stephen Cohn. He's uh, done two other movies. I haven't seen them yet, but apparently they share some of the same like similarities in the way like the story and the characters are written. So I want to check them out. Uh, but Princess Sid, uh, you mentioned s- sex positivity earlier, Corey. Well, Princess Sid has positivity everything. It's positive, positive. All inclusive, so good, so happy. There is a content warning. There is uh, implied rape for uh, one of the characters, but it's you know it happens off off screen and it's not used to define the character, so it it doesn't come off as like gross or anything. But uh, Princess Sid is uh, so the the main character of the movie, Sid. Uh, she's a teenage girl. Her uh, mother, I can't, I think it was, 
I think it was her brother. I don't remember. One of the family members killed her mom and then committed suicide. So her father's got bad depression. And so he, he, uh, in dealing with that, uh, he's like in a major depressive episode. So he sends Sid off to live with her aunt, uh, Miranda, uh, for a few weeks. And so the movie is about, uh, Sid and Miranda, like learning more about themselves and like coming to age, like through each other. I mean, Miranda's like an adult, but like she's learning more about herself through Sid coming of age and learning of herself. And like, there's a, like for one of the scenes, like no one, I probably no one else would think this with this scene, but like to, to make an example, like what I'm talking about positivity, uh, there's a scene where, uh, Sid, she's like been in Miranda's house for not that long. I think it was like, this is the morning after the first night she got there. And Miranda's making her breakfast, and she's just doing it, like, out of routine. And then uh, Sid shows up in the kitchen, and Miranda's like, oh, fuck, I didn't even think about it. Are you a vegetarian? Uh, and Sid's, like, laughs at the sincerity of Miranda and is like, no. Like, I could see how someone might interpret that as, like, a joke, but it doesn't come across as a joke. It just comes across as, like, very, like, thoughtful, you know, as, you know, I'm a vegan, so... It's just nice to see stuff like that, even if, like, the characters themselves aren't. Uh, and then there's a moment later in the movie where uh, Sid says to Miranda, like, like, Miranda, like, has her own things that she does and she likes to do. Like, she likes to read. She's an author. Uh, I think she's also works at a university. And she has, you know, all these other things. And then Sid, you know, she plays soccer and she's very uh sexually curious and like unself-conscious in her body image and so like uh at one point in the movie sid uh says like to miranda maybe if you had sex once in a while you wouldn't want to eat all the time which is really fucked up but miranda's response is like so accepting and understanding like it's not like i feel like like if i like if I said something messed up or rude or hurtful, like, I feel like, especially, like, coming from, like, family members, I feel like the response would be, like, very accusatory and mean and, like, fucking how dare you and, like, not, like, not towards any, like, understanding or resolution or anything, like, just very, like, hurtful, just, like, throwing the vitriol right back, which probably has fucked me up in some way. Uh, but uh Miranda's response uh like she has this whole speech uh so one of the th- like near the end of the speech she said or like in there she says it is not a handicap to have one thing but not another to be one way and not another we are different shapes and ways and our happiness is unique there are no rules of balance and it's just like like in the whole movie like exemplifies this like it's it's okay to be the way you are and it's okay for someone else to be the way they are uh and it's like celebratory of that of those differences and like finding understanding among each other and so the other part of the movie besides Sid and Miranda's relationship is Sid and Katie's relationship and Katie's this barista that uh Sid like uh hooks up with and becomes friends with and like here I really liked it uh when Sid meets Katie um, at first, it's just like she sees her 
like she's lost and she goes in this coffee shop and she sees her and like uh there's kind of like that attraction like in their eyes you can tell uh from both of them but she's just like asking for directions and then she leaves and so eventually sid uh goes back because you know she likes this girl but she doesn't really know what to do when she goes to the coffee shop like it's real awkward and uh instead of like because like flirting with or like um asking out like people that are uh like in like at their jobs like you know as like a clerk or like cashier or like waiter or something is like really weird and i think like the dynamic just like because they're supposed to be nice to you like that's the job like there's no like like maybe there could be something but like that's not like you shouldn't like come to like that like that conclusion, like, oh, you're nice to me, so you like me, so let's go out. So, so in the movie, Katie is the one that asks Sid out, so it uh, turns that dynamic around. And so it's not weird because Katie is in the higher position. Uh, and so it, you know, uh, she explores her sexuality with Katie. It's really great and awesome. And like, uh, Sid is, like, there's, there's a part, um, there's like some gender non-conforming stuff too. So like, uh, there's a party and Sid needs something to wear. So she asks Katie for help and Kate, Katie's, um, she's kind of butch. So she has a tuxedo. And so Sid wears this tuxedo to the part, to Miranda's party. And she just looks super awesome. And like, when she gets there, like she's sort of nervous because, you know, she's in a tuxedo, which is, different uh but everyone's like super nice and like wow you look great and uh she's talking to some of the the people there and asking about this lesbian couple and like how they came to understanding their sexuality oh you liked men before but now you don't and their response is like wait are you asking if we like dick <laughs> uh and uh then they turn that around on Sid and they ask Sid what she likes and she's like, I guess I like everything, you know, so either she's like bisexual or pansexual. I don't know. I thought that was really cool to have uh, that representation in the movie. So, yeah, it's just like just all of that, just the positivity, inclusiveness, just very, very comforting. I guess that's all I have. All right. Number you should two. watch it. Number one. Number one. Thanks for <laughs> Princess Sid. Princess uh, Corey, what's your number one? All right, guys. Cannot believe that this has not been talked about yet. <laughs> Although, I'm not surprised. Um, I'm actually really uh, interested in seeing uh, Princess Sid. Uh, not, more so than Twin Peaks The Return. <laughs> Sorry, Chris. I'll give a shit. I'll give a shit. <laughs> Um, no, but, uh, my number one was Blade Runner 2049. Yeah, this movie is, I like Blade Runner, the original. There's parts of it where it show, it shows its very dated, uh, viewpoints, especially on, uh, uh, treatment of women. Uh, there is, um, <laughs> and, uh, so coming into this, Denny Villeneuve, uh, work. I was wondering how they were going to do it. Also, there are, like, three shorts. One of them is an anime film short, which is pretty fucking stellar, called Blackout. And uh, this movie is tops uh, and transcends all the elements of the first one. Uh, Production design, uh, 
thematically acting I think is fantastic throughout uh, there is some real complex ideas uh, within this movie uh, that are portrayed so beautifully there's uh, there's really nothing that I didn't like about it uh, and most things I loved about it uh, which I guess is like the best compliment you can give it uh, where you go well it's nothing uh, it is a cinematic experience that um, I keep on going back to along with Alien Covenant <laughs> <laughs> Okay, okay, all right, all right, no. <laughs> I like them for very different reasons, uh, and Alien Covenant is a very flawed movie, but I like how cynical it is about humanity, and that's all I'll say about that. You know, Blade Runner 2049, I feel, uh, is pretty much like the pinnacle of science fiction of this year, uh, and there were a lot of great science fiction movies. I mean... Science fiction bled even into uh, the Marvel Universe and kind of gave us one of the better Marvel films quite a while here with Thor Ragnarok. I really don't look at Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 2, or the whole Guardians of the Galaxy world. They're more uh, fantasy than anything space fantasy, but this is me splitting genre hairs. Uh, you know, we got a new Star Wars film, which was just as ambitious thematically as I think Blade Runner was, although I don't think it succeeds anywhere near as close uh, with its ideas. Uh, but, you know, there's great action. The cinematography is, like, unparalleled, really. And uh, just that whole aesthetic. I love how they, they built the world to be... Um, an extension of the 80s world so it's not like super futuristic it's more like this weird retro futuristic amalgamation i love the little ideas about water in it where uh and how it's used to portray wealth uh there's a point where somebody takes a shower and the shower just blasts like maybe like three seconds worth of water onto them and that's it and then um Jared Leto's character lives in this office slash temple that is just uh, surrounded and um, lit by water to show off his wealth. Like, it's just great little ideas all over the place in this movie that make it such a joy to watch. And, uh, yeah, Blade Runner 2049. Fantastic movie. I keep on going back to it. You know, uh, I'm... Assuming that everybody saw it here? Uh, yeah. It's my number seven. <laughs> yeah, it might have been higher on my list if I had rewatched it, but there's that movie is pretty dense, so I, I don't think I would uh, be comfortable ranking it without having seen it again. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I really like the ending. Um, I like how it's two-thirds of a movie for Ryan Gosling, and then the last third is... Uh, two-thirds of the narrative, I should say, are for Ryan Gosling, and then the last third is for... Um, a returning character. I am a little myth that the the marketing was uh, gave away such a pivotal return, but I I understand it because like that that's what got a lot of people their butts in the seats. But yeah, so I'm not gonna beat around the bush because everybody knows it. Harrison Ford doesn't show up until an hour and forty five minutes into this two and a half hour movie, and it's 
it's played so incredibly that the fact that every marketing bit is nope, it's got Harrison Ford returning is it's really it, it's super dumb. It was dumb that they did that. Everyone should, uh, if you want to like hear more discourse on Blade Runner twenty forty nine, you should listen to the uh, Waypoint podcast on it. Uh, <laughs> the podcast is like two and a half hours long. I think it's almost as long as the movie. Uh, but they go like they cover everything, uh, like race, gender, cinematography, politics. Is it like three uh, white guys it, talking about all of this? No, it's a black man, uh, a lesbian, white woman, and a, uh, a Latin man, Latin American man. I'll have to check that out. It's really good. They go really deep into it. One of the things that I was really impressed by was uh, how well it holds up watching it at home on a TV. Because uh, when I was sitting in the theater, that was, it was such a an overwhelming experience. Like I'll never forget sitting in the theater with the the Hans Zimmer Womps and the the seawall and like it was just so overwhelming that i was a bit hesitant when it came out on video i popped it in and it was just as immersive on a you know a much smaller screen which i think is good because that means that because it plays well at home that it will continue to to build an audience much like the original blade runner did cuz the studio spent a lot of money on this and they didn't quite make it all back but this one's going to get a good cult following. definitely happy about it, though. Like, oh, yeah. I don't think it hurt anybody's credentials that it was a commercial failure. But what do you expect when you make a high-budget sequel to a cult classic? Um, <laughs> and, and get even more dense and obtuse. Yeah, I can't imagine them thinking going into it with high expectations that it would make a lot of money. I think that, I think Denis Villeneuve had had said that the the, the executives knew what they were going uh, what they were getting into. I, I think I think he said that like flat out nobody was expecting it to make back its money. They were just proud of what they made and wanted to get it out there. Which the story changed once it stopped making money altogether and mm-hmm. it was short. But when it first came out, that was the the narrative they were pushing. Um, I I think does no harm uh, again it's a movie that you know you kind of do need to see the first one to really understand well at least the dynamic of a, a character that you kind of see <laughs> from the first one who is vastly important but is not uh, her presence is all over the film and yet she never shows up wink wink <laughs> so Dave uh, Batista shows up though yes and he's really good. Um, he's terrific. And it's man, I you leave such a bad taste in my mouth from your Guardians of the Galaxy person. <laughs> <laughs> like I fucking hate Guardians of the Galaxy uh, <laughs> and James Gunn and what he is type of humor. Uh, so uh, to see him here, like actually like doing a very credible job uh, as a very sad. Uh, and broke scientist doctor uh, is you would not expect that from a dude that wrestled is, mm-hmm. was he a UFC or no WWE uh, okay. I figured I was talking to the right crowd to correct me <laughs> yeah, just me uh, and, he's, he's so good that the short film that's about his character like I, I, I just watching the short film after the movie I was just like oh my god Where's my David Bautista Blade Runner spinoff? Like, the whole thing. <laughs> that would be interesting. I wonder if they're going to make a 
a third one. I hope they do. Um, hopefully it's uh, 35 anime. years from now. An anime. Because <laughs> that anime one was so good. Directed by Masaki Yuasa. <laughs> was it? No. No, 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 no. I mean, the, 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 the hypothetical oh. sequel. The hypothetical sequel. No, I it was Boss uh, Nabe that did the, uh, the Blackout. It was. All right. Uh, the guy that did uh, directed Cowboy Bebop, Samurai Champloo. Oh. Things of that. Watanabe. Yes. Uh, so, I'm... That's pretty much it. I mean, it, it was pretty clear that, for anybody that knows me, that Blade Runner was going to be well right up there. So, yeah. All right. Number one, Blade Runner 2049. Chris, I'm surprised how little you've spoken about Ryan Gosling. Look, he... I, I think... I think from years previous, everybody fully understands the the relationship that me and him have. <laughs> Be unhealthy. No, it is extremely healthy. Um, it's mutual. He he shouted it's out to mutual. me in La La Land. Yeah, in La La Land, he he had that whole scene that was him telling me specifically that he reciprocates my love, even though we can't be together. We we acknowledge the bond. I I remember I remember. He, Hearing him name drop you. <laughs> Speaking of people named Chris, uh, on to my number one, which is, of course, Get Out. Uh, I agree with everything Chris said. Um, it is chilling to watch this movie, uh, and none of us on this panel are black males or black females, uh, so we we only experience like part of the... Um, the content of this film, um, like uh, scenes where uh, the crap, what's her name, the the maid, who is the maid. I'm not gonna say what I was about to say. Oh yeah, yeah. Let's not uh, let's not ruin the surprise. Yeah, Georgina. Uh, scenes where Georgina is like just shaking her head and saying no, 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 no. no, uh, Seeing anything with Lil Ray Howery is just hilarious. Lakeith Stanfeld, as he always does, puts in the performance of the year. Um, uh, And Daniel Kaluuya as uh, Chris Washington is uh, just fantastic. Uh, I guess they cast him based off of his performance in Black Mirror. Yeah, what did I say? What did I say? He was in Black Mirror. Yeah. That's a good one. I, did, I didn't deny you, man. Yeah. I didn't deny you. And then uh, he he went straight from this to Black Panther, so he didn't really see the uh, the blow up about Gig Out because he was too busy filming Black Panther. Like Kaluuya is in Black Panther as well. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know, I know that. that. I I am I have I have to see that. I'm about to see that after we are done with this. Uh, I was hoping to see a matinee, but then uh, Chris started talking about Twin Peaks, and I was like, I'm not making it to a no, matinee. No, you're not. When Twin Peaks comes up, the world stops. Yeah, so Kaluuya is in Black Panther as Kabi, who is uh, T'Challa's right-hand man, kind of. Yeah, he plays. Oh, that's cool. I'll be, uh, I'll be enjoying him again. Yeah, uh, he is. I have yet to see him. Well, in Doctor Who, he probably gigged his natural British accent, uh, but I don't remember his performance in Doctor Who, so I've yet to remember a performance by him with his British accent. Yeah, Allison Williams is creepy as fuck. Uh, Man, I know, right? It's sad that it's like she is picking uh, a... She's a gorgeous woman, uh, and she has great comedic talent, but all the characters that she plays, um, which I'm thinking of, this one as an Armitage and uh, Marnie from Girls. Yep. Uh, 
she plays very unlikable people. Yeah. <laughs> I like her. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Steven Root is the one of the main antagonists in the film. Emma Stapler. With Stapler. Yeah, <laughs> Stapler guy in Office Space. He's not the same role in this one, but he might be just as crazy. And there is, uh, in, in the scenes, of course, it deals a lot, a lot about uh, race and the both oppression of black individuals and also the putting on a pedestal of black individuals because of their uh, so-called athletic prowess or thought to be athletic prowess above them like uh commentators in the way back when would just say well of course they're they're faster because they have uh like longer achilles or something like that was said about jackie robinson at a time and uh there is one one scene where like there's all all these white people and it's arm the armature's friends and family i guess and then there's this one asian dude which like is so true to real life because so often Asians are just complicit in the racism of white people because like we are uh, we are like as white passing as you can get because of all these positive stereotypes which are insidious in different ways but yeah Get Out was so good that was that was a great scene like I was the only one like oh shit I know where this is going <laughs> in the theater I was like I was like oh, oh hell no <laughs> and the, the people that were next to me were like started laughing too. I was like, you know where this is going. <laughs> like, <laughs> we all knew it. We were like, oh shit, man. Yeah. Uh, I am not getting out of this unscathed. I think I said. <laughs> yeah. uh, just like, just like Florida Project makes bath scenes very insidious. Out makes bingo scenes very insidious. Bingo is uh, is very yeah. insidious. I don't know if you've ever been to a bingo night. That shit's scary, dude. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I when I saw Get Out in the theater, like that was like the best theater experience I've ever had. I hate people talking when I go to the theater. I hate it. That's I, I wait two or three weeks, maybe four weeks. Sometimes I forget and then I watch it on video because I don't like going to the theater and people commentating or talking during the movie if it, even if it's not rude like i just don't like it uh but in get out i think i the vast majority of the people that were in there were, were all black people and they were so absorbed into this movie they were hooping and hollering and yelling and it didn't upset me like because it because it it, it it enhanced that that experience because you do you feel something terrible is lurking right around the corner you're waiting for that pin to drop and internally, you're just like, oh, shit. And to have the dude like right next to me, very verbally be like, oh, shit. It was so amazing. Um, like you're saying with the, when you see the Asian dude, you're just like, what the fuck? The whole theater was like that. Oh, I wasn't um, like, what the fuck? I was like, shit. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Jordan Peele knows. The whole, theater, the whole theater just exuded that same kind of the, that energy. It, it was incredible. That was the best theater experience I've ever had. And, and, I've gone to the theater since, and people have talked, and I'm immediately upset. <laughs> there was a special exception. Something about the air in that theater and the the film itself. The Get Out is is that good. Well, that I mean the 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 movie openly reciprocates that response with yeah uh, the ending. Rod. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That that one character is the 
the audience surrogate, I guess yeah. you would say. Um, and he takes it from a complete, um, I want to say it's, it's definitely Eddie Murphy's joke where he talks about, uh, black people in, like a black, like going into a... Oh yeah, buying a house? Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What? Uh, yeah, so Eddie Murphy has this joke. Uh, briefly, it's there. He's going in with. Um, yeah, yeah. He's going in with like his white wife or something, and uh, or white friends or whatever. And he looking at this house, and the it's a very nice house. And then he's like, "Oh, it's haunted." And uh, oh, hear, oh yeah. Yeah, you just hear get out. Murphy <laughs> <laughs> is like, "Nope, that's okay. We're we're going." <laughs> Like, I guess we're good. Uh, yeah. Bye. Um, and, be, and because I can't resist the dirty brother, the Caleb Landry Jones, that dude who just needs to take a bath. He's also in Twin Peaks, and he's really good in that. But he also looks like he needs to take a bath. So maybe he just needs to take a bath. <laughs> he does. He looks the same. <laughs> Jesus, just <laughs> shave that peach fuzz and take a bath. Wash your hair. <laughs> Love of God. Yeah, there's that first, you know, the first couple minutes of this film where Allison Williams is like, "Oh, I'm taking you to my parents, but they know I'm black." No, why would I? Why would I tell them that? They don't. They don't see color. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but everyone else, uh, or every person of color, knows that like that's the thing that you have to tell people. Um, then uh, there's there's the next scene when they run into a deer and the policeman is called and it's like, "No, I don't have a driver's license. It's just a state ID." It's like, "No, it's fine. You can." You could look at it, but Allison Williams' character is being very vehement against uh, the, the cop looking at him. And you're like, oh, that's very nice of you, Allison Williams. And then uh, by the end of the movie, you're like, oh, that's why she did that. Yeah, she was trying to cover up her involvement. Yeah. Um, I Yeah, the movie's so good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so good. All right, number one, gig out. Let's, uh, let's wrap this up before we hit four hours. Uh <laughs> Oh, it'll be edited down to, like, three. Come on, it's fine. Will it? <laughs> uh, where can we find y'all on the internet, Chris? I am on the Twitters, at GoKoofy. Uh, because this is the movie podcast, I will tell everybody that I am on Letterboxd, also at GoKoofy. Uh, so you can uh, stalk me and watch all the ridiculous movies that I watch, um, if you like. You can also yell at me on Twitter through the Taiku Podcast Twitter if you so deem so. Camellia? Wild Palm on Twitter. It's P O M M E. Corey? Uh, I'm on Twitter as well. Uh, it's Modern Rocker, M O D A N D R O C K E R. Yeah, I'm usually just casually lurking on there, looking at uh, politics and Twitter moments. But uh, hit me up if you want to discuss something. Like movies. Or Love Live. Uh, no. <laughs> love Live forever. <laughs> no. No. I will. Uh, no Love Live. Uh. <laughs> Corey is a Nico fan, so all you Nico fans out there, he is very willing and ready. Let me tell you about <laughs> Alien Covenant, guys. Oh, no. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm on Twitter at uh, Impassionate K. The podcast is on Twitter at Taiku Podcast, T-A-I-I-K-U, and you can find all of our episodes on taikupodcast.com. Uh, if you so desire, you should review us on iTunes and tell me what I'm doing wrong. Uh, thank you all for coming on talking about movies, as always. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks.
I was typing. I was typing, and I don't know how, but it answered the phone. <laughs> Shit. And I was type. And I was typing. I'm glad Corey is taking so long because my washer is having issues, and I don't want it screaming and yelling during <laughs> when we're recording. But yeah. that, here, he, there he is. We, we totally want it to scream and yell at us when we record. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's how professional work. Yep. Okay. Okay. I mean, that's fine, man. That's fine. I'll let it go. Yeah, you've never edited podcasts, Chris, so this is how it works. <laughs> is, is your washer constantly running Hi, in the back? Number five is... <laughs> in here, guys. <laughs> Hold my phone, cat.